Hi, and welcome to Listen Up A-Holes, the only Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that straps a chair to its ass and takes long walks around the neighborhood. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. And I'm Joshua Unruh, superhero scholar from Pulp Diction Productions. Together, we're working our way through the good, the bad, and the ugly of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So listen up, A-Holes. We're going to talk about Agent Carter. Okay, so we have to start this comic history with a little bit of house cleaning from other movies. Okay. Because it would be terrible if I didn't at least talk a little bit about Peggy Carter in her own show. (laughs) Sure. But at the same time, we've pretty well covered her in the first Avenger, right? So (laughs) to kind of spin that plate before we talk about the much better version of Peggy that's in this show, Mm -hmm. in the comics... Basically just a love interest with just enough competency and skill to make it plausible for her to hang out with Captain America on battlefields of World War II. That's Mm -hmm. basically it. She was working with the French Resistance. She met Cap. He's dreamy. Mm -hmm. Smoochy, smoochy. Shoot Nazis. (laughs) That's it. That's really the whole thing. I mean, I think it's really telling that at least comic book wise, Captain America's largest looming love interest is actually Sharon Carter, a.k.a. Agent Mm -hmm. 13 of S.H.I.E.L.D., who is at first Peggy's niece and then great niece as that sliding timescale keeps going on. I mean, just she's the one that the comics focused on, but the MCU took a different tack and God bless them. Yes. Mm -hmm. Also a little house cleaning, Roxxon. We mentioned it already just recently in Iron Man 3, but Mm -hmm. because it's kind of a big deal in at least these first few episodes, Roxxon was created in the comics in 1974. It's every evil energy corporation you need all rolled up into one. (laughs) That's very efficient of them. Well, you know, I mean, once you Mm -hmm. make one, you don't really need like a bunch of them. So exactly. Mm -hmm. It's brand recognition, which speaking (laughs) of is why it is similar but legally distinct from Exxon. Sure. (laughs) We want everybody to know exactly what it is without getting sued. So Yes. Mm -hmm. And it really isn't super important here, except as a location and part of the investigation. But I at least really appreciate the world building in these relatively small details. Oh, yeah. And and when you said it in 1940, you know, (laughs) um, it it gives the whole MCU this feeling of history. Like, well, yeah, that's been around for a minute. And if in one of the other movies, Roxanne goes out of business for whatever reason, we'll be like, mm-hmm. oh, you, you know, it'll it'll feel like a cohesive whole without, you know, just beating us over the head with world building like so many fantasy novels like to do, you know? Right. But that's the nice thing about the world building, I think, in these properties is that sometimes like you just need to reference something. So they'll pull something from the world to reference and it really makes it feel built out. Yeah, absolutely. This is actually part of the kind of ethos of Mm -hmm. the Marvel Universe in the comics Um, for various and sundry reasons, both kind of historical and with purpose as they went on, DC kind of splits its universe up into these little fiefdoms, you know, of, Mm -hmm. of fictional cities. And I think Mm -hmm. that there is a big strength in that 
which I will not bore you all with right now. (laughs) But Marvel was doing a very specific thing when they set everything in this more or less right outside your window, New York. And so you could have Spider-Man doing whatever he was doing in the foreground and see Thor flying across in the background Mm -hmm. and not have them interact at all, but it felt like a whole cohesive thing. Yeah, I like that. And movie-wise, we do that with these, you know, these mentions of these companies and uh, countries and other small details you know so Mm -hmm. i i bring rocks on up for that reason i really like what that does to the to the universe as a whole Mm -hmm. yeah definitely big stuff shield now the ssr is not shield the ssr is proto shield though right i mean exactly it's more like right okay proto shield right yes I'm still going to talk about shield in some pretty in-depth business here for agent carter Because what Agent Carter does has more in common with what the origins of S.H.I.E.L.D. were in the comics, at least pop culturally. Mm -hmm. Like, you can definitely see the DNA carried forward into Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and we will talk about that. But the Mm -hmm. more obvious, like, direct, you know, apples-to-apples comparison is more with the S.H.I.E.L.D. of the 60s. Mm-hmm. Right. Even though this is the 40s. So mm-hmm. S.H.I.E.L.D. first appears in Strange Tales number 135, 1965. Mm-hmm. Pulled straight from Wikipedia because I did actually know the first one of these, but then it gets real fuzzy for me. The acronym originally stood for Supreme Headquarters International Espionage Law Enforcement Division. That's the one I knew because that's the one I grew up with. Right. <laughs> Apparently, in 1991, it was changed to the Strategic Hazard Intervention Espionage Logistics Directorate. Okay. Sure. That is word salad. The first one (laughs) actually kind of made sense, right? Right. Oh, it's a Supreme Headquarters, right? What do they do? International Espionage. Got it. Oh, and they're a division for law enforcement. Sure. There you go. Sure. Uh But this is... What is a strategic hazard? I don't even. Yeah. I, anyway, no, right. I know you salad. intervene in the hazard strategically. It's not great. <laughs> but within the various films of the MCU, uh-huh. it is. And, and also their animated and live action TV series that have spun off. The acronym stands for Strategic Homeland Intervention Enforcement and Logistics Division. Yes. Which is a little better. Sure. I mm-hmm. like the introduction of Homeland, because that just feels very much like of the world now. You of know? the moment, sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like the idea that strategy is actually a thing they do. I still mm-hmm. don't know what they are enforcing or what logistics they are the division in charge of. Sure. <laughs> well, it takes a lot of logistics. As somebody who watches Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and we're going to get to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., there's got to be a lot of logistics involved with, you know, getting these people everywhere they need to go. I mean, so... Well, yeah, but that's like naming your entire company after your HR department. (laughs) You know, it is. But if you really, really want to make it spell shield, you got to be willing to like, what do we have? What do we have that starts with L? Logistics? Oh, right. It's in there. No, I get it. I'm just saying law enforcement, (laughs) pretty strong. Sure, sure. I mean, that's not really what the movie ones do exactly. But anyway, I'm just. Yeah. The thing is, and why this is a very entertaining conversation to me. Right. Is that this S.H.I.E.L.D. organization grew out of the 60s where there were a ton of pop cultural espionage organizations. Many of them had weird acronyms for names. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a bunch of these. My personal favorite is Man from Uncle. 
Mm-hmm. And we will talk more about Man from Uncle later. Even though it's not technically a comic book, it really impacts the feel of Agent Carter. So I'm okay. gonna I'm gonna widen my scope to a little pop cultural history instead. But Great. you just got to know these crazy acronyms come out of a very particular space. They yes. make so much mm-hmm. sense within that space. Shield was definitely a product of that time and always a mix of the contradictions of the era. So it's an mm-hmm. espionage organization, but they have uniforms. Yes. And a strong Mm -hmm. military kind of feel. Mm -hmm. It started out as a very American organization. Then it kind of morphed into a United Nations operation. And in recent years, it's pretty heavily returned to being American. And I feel like the comic book confusion over this is mirrored in the organization's use and structure in the MCU. Mm -hmm. I think that will come up much more as we talk about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., so I'll put a pin in that. But that muddy water, I think you can see, kind of gets splashed onto the MCU. Like, who's in charge of this thing? Eh. (laughs) Nick Fury? You know, Mm -hmm. except when he's talking to shadowy dudes in video screens. I don't, you know. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Speaking of Nick Fury, S.H.I.E.L.D. has Mm -hmm. been most famously led by him. And when I say this Nick Fury, I'm talking about the Caucasian one who fought in World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually with Dum Dum Dugan as his second in command and sometimes taking over for him. This is the mm-hmm. gent with the fantastic mustache and bowler from the first Avenger. Right. But, okay, now if you're in S.H.I.E.L.D. and your director is, is Dum Dum, doesn't that... Doesn't that feel bad? Doesn't that feel wrong? Like, I would want Nick Fury giving me orders. Dum Dum Dugan, I don't want giving me any orders. <laughs> I feel as though, yes, he is off-brand for the organization. (laughs) Except sometimes espionage organizations are really stupid. Okay. And we'll see that. No, actually, it makes a lot more sense with the kind of more militaristic arm of S.H.I.E.L.D. Sure. Mm -hmm. And it makes more sense when you're talking about sort of living legends from the last good war. Right. Who mm-hmm. somehow convinced themselves that espionage was the next logical career step. You know? I'm just saying that when you allow somebody to give you a nickname, because I'm presuming that he was not born and his mother said, and we shall name him Dum Dum. Right? No, I I'm think presuming... his name is Timothy. All right. Okay. So somebody gave him the nickname Dum Dum. So I think that generally, you know, just as a general rule, people out there, if you have career aspirations where people are going to need to take you seriously, be very careful about what nicknames you let become associated (laughs) with you. Because that one is terribly unfortunate. Fair. However, I think that he was generally the heavy weapons guy in the Howling Commandos. Uh And the Dum Dum is actually in reference to the Dum 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 of the big gun that he carried. Yes. Still unfortunate connotations. I know. I'm just going to say. Because if he stops carrying the big gun around, you're like, well, obviously he's either an idiot or he's got many fruit flavors like the little suckers. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's I like get mouth it. breather Dugan wouldn't have been any better. Neck beard Dugan wouldn't have been any better. But, they're but you can't tell like... he's a mouth breather behind that fantastic mustache. Just saying. No, that's oh. very true. <laughs> uh, another name that you will recognize who has taken over as director is Maria Hill. Oh, I love her. She is Kind of the worst in the comics, oh, as far okay. as I'm concerned. I I had real mixed feelings about her in the movies because of what she's been like in the comics. But oh, okay. uh, I'm also prepared to kind of check my male privilege there because sure. she stepped into the directorship at a very complicated moment in time and mm-hmm. then wound up fighting Captain America, which you know how I feel about that. That makes you the bad guy. Right. You know? Exactly. 
But, you know, generally just real take charge attitude. And I may have been reading take charge as bitchy. I mean, I need to revisit some of that stuff, except it's not always my favorite stuff. So I don't reread it. Right. You only got so much time, man. Right, right. (laughs) She has briefly stepped down into the assistant director position under Mm -hmm. another name you'll recognize, Tony Stark. Wow. BT Dubs, predictably terrible idea. Right. Was this during his, like, you know, alcoholic phase? Is he still having issues with that? Because he just doesn't seem he he seems like the guy that pisses off the director, not the director. Yeah, exactly. Like, don't you don't put your, you know, your Han Solos in charge. Exactly. They got to be the rogue heroes on the side. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So not great. Not great. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was also uh, secretary of defense during this time. (laughs) So it's like, what? Well, no, I believe that <laughs> seeing some of the people that are in our higher government, that's totally believable for me at this point. Too real, Lonnie. Too real. I know. <laughs> Let's go back into the fantasy realm. Let's go back into the cinematic universe. Uh, now, I mentioned the Iron Patriot was originally Norman the Green Goblin Osborne, and it yes. was Tony's run as director of S.H.I.E.L.D. and secretary of defense that set up the ability for a more or less known supervillain to take over. <laughs> but again, he disbanded it and turned it into Hammer. So it, it's only technically a S.H.I.E.L.D. director, you know. Okay. Most recently, and you're going to get real excited about this, and I'm not going to know why. Most recently, <laughs> the director is Daisy Johnson. Oh, yeah. Who mm-hmm. has some tenuous connection to a character on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? I don't know. Okay, you haven't seen any Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. yet, right? I have seen some, but uh-huh. not enough for that to matter to me at all. Oh, then you have not seen near enough. Well, that's okay. We're going to get that. But I'm yeah, get I, my can absolutely, I can absolutely see where that's coming from. So she winds up as director and works with Nick Fury Jr., who we've talked about. Yes. The Nick Fury who finally looks like the MCU Nick Fury, who has uh-huh. an old army buddy who also joined S.H.I.E.L.D. with him, Phil Coulson. <gasps> Phil Coulson! Yeah, Yay! I really don't know how much they have in common, because clearly this guy's a noob and like oh, yeah. 25. Oh. So, I mean, in the notes, I stand by this insert shrug emoji here. I don't know. <laughs> right? I just, I don't know. All right. Well, Phil Coulson's my guy. As everybody knows, I love Phil Coulson. Right. I I may go look up like the best Marvel 616. That's like the main universe. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Phil Coulson stuff and shoot it at you so you can tell me if they... If they have anything in common. Yeah, yeah. No, I will. I will absolutely read that stuff. I will probably be heartily disappointed, but that's okay. Now, story-wise, S.H.I.E.L.D. has been replaced and subverted so many times, I don't even understand how one guy trusts another person in the cubicle (laughs) next to them. I mean, the thing is 45 years old. It's basically an in-fiction excuse for secret agent stuff with some superhero Mm -hmm. nonsense. And as is way too often the case in superhero fiction, massive changes lead to equally massive upheavals and eventually even more massive resets to the status quo. So I feel like a lot of times S.H.I.E.L.D. has been on the wrong end of several of those. Yeah, the TV show, absolutely, like no spoilers, but keeps that going. Yeah. Okay, something to look forward to. (laughs) I, I mean, listen, big, stupid comic book nonsense is a way to hook me when uh-huh. all else fails. so All right. <laughs> now, a few personalities. Let's talk about Howard Stark. Oh, let's. 
So we didn't talk about him very much in the first Avenger because I thought it would make more sense here. He's kind of a bigger deal in a lot of ways here (laughs) than he was in Cap's first movie. Comic book Howard Stark is completely different than MCU Howard Stark. (laughs) Or at least he's completely different from one of them. Mm -hmm. Because comic book Howard is very similar to that kind of driven, no-nonsense Howard we get in the Iron Man movies. Mm-hmm. But he is nothing like the Howard Hughes meets Hugh Hefner version we get in First Adventure and Agent Carter. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does feel like two different versions of this guy. Like something happened between, you know, Peggy Carter era Howard Stark and like the guy that, you know, that Tony is watching movies of, you know, I mean, it's just it feels completely different. So you think something along those lines, like just from that narrative point of view, that there's a story in there about what changed him. You know, I have a headcanon uh-huh. where both Peggy and Howard get quite a bit harder uh-huh. as yeah. people because the 50s and 60s happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. McCarthyism happened. You think an English woman is going to be well regarded by the House on American Activities Commission and just mm-hmm. look at Howard. My God. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like in, you know, I don't have like one single story, but in my own personal headspace, the 50s would do it. Something dark happened. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's I mean, America happened. America. In the 50s <laughs> right. and yeah. beyond. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean. I kind of hope I get to see that at some point. It would be really interesting. But that's always just been the thing that I assumed is that they just became actual spies and got real mean, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Comic Book Howard is a science and mechanical engineering prodigy himself. Apparently, Mm -hmm. it runs in the family. (laughs) In the comics, he founded Stark International with his own dad, who's actually Howard Stark Sr. We never talk Mm -hmm. about him. Wow. Except Mm -hmm. in terms of this. That's his whole job. So, but that is kind of the Obadiah Stane stand-in. Obadiah Stane is the MCU Howard Stark Sr. in that way. They founded the company together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And basically 99% of the Howard Stark appearances in the comics jive perfectly with that John Slattery portrayal in the MCU. And almost 0%, actually for real, 0% jive with the Dominic (laughs) Cooper portrayal. I've never seen it. All right. But I say 99% because there's a 1% that gets real weird. Uh-huh. So Howard Stark was once an agent of the Brotherhood of the Shield, a covert organization created to keep the entire Earth safe and founded by Imhotep. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes, that Imhotep, the one and only polymath pharaoh of ancient Egypt. Wow. So it is a 5,000-year-old organization. Okay. Kind of like the the Knights Templar, something like that, like a secret brotherhood sort of thing. Is that exactly what only yeah, okay. so much older, <laughs> right? And yeah. they they actually have uh, in the comic book series that talks about this story with Howard, they have a flashback to that time, like the first the founding of the Brotherhood of wow. the Shield. Uh-huh. And Marvel Comics has a, an alien race called the Brood, which are basically the Xenomorphs from the Alien franchise with the serial yeah. numbers filed off. Uh-huh. And they have this army of ancient Egyptians standing against a brood invasion. And you recognize a few of them. There is one person looking very stalwart with a shield with a star motif. It's not Captain America, because how could it be? But, you know, they're nodding. Yeah. You have Moon Knight, which Mm -hmm. is um, a urban vigilante type in the modern Marvel universe. But it Mm -hmm. is empowered by 
uh, Khonshu, an ancient Egyptian goddess. So, of course, she had a moon knight in her heyday. Oh, my and, God. And Apocalypse, who is an X-Men villain, but is the in-fiction first mutant ever. So wow. it's got kind of a pedigree, right? It's kind of interesting. Right. Yeah. In the 50s, though, we've got Howard and his partner, Nathaniel Richards, mm-hmm. father of Reed Richards. Okay. You may know Reed better by his adventuring name, Mr. Fantastic. <laughs> But the odds are you don't even know what that is because, (laughs) much to my sadness, the MCU doesn't own the Fantastic Four. (laughs) But yeah, Howard Stark, father of Iron Man, Nathaniel Richards, father of Mr. Fantastic, are buddy cops for the Brotherhood (laughs) of the Shield, tasked with, among many other weird as hell things, recruiting a young man named Leonid. Uh-huh. who turns out to be the half-human biological child of Sir Isaac Newton, <laughs> the adopted son of Nikola Tesla, who has wow. been under the protection of the immortal Leonardo da Vinci, <laughs> met and hung out with an immortal Nostradamus in a secret room of the Imperial City, which is the secret headquarters of the Brotherhood beneath Rome, uh-huh. all before he escaped into the future to save the world from the silent truth. You should hear the capital letters there because that's uh-huh. the utter destruction of all humanity in 2060. Okay. It's bonkers. Oh my God. That's insane. I love it. That's crazy. It's yeah. I mean, even by Marvel standards, this is like, what? Yeah. You know, so nobody in a Marvel writer's room has ever uttered the words, Guys, we taking this too far? Like, that has never happened? <laughs> to be honest, okay, I, I know where you're coming from, and I think you're right, except if I adjust for superhero comics, uh, Marvel yeah. is the safe and sane really? member of the family. Wow. I mean, DC is the one who has, like, living ideas <laughs> that come to fight their wars on Earth, you know, and hyper-intelligent wow. colors from the fifth dimension and stuff. I mean... <laughs> You know, like, like in comparison, Marvel's like, yeah, 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 I know we're super, we're super chill. Oh my God. (laughs) But you're right. Some of these more weird trips, you know, um, anytime they start mucking around before there are superheroes, it's just like, wow, how did it not occur to any of these people to put on a mask? You know? Oh my God. That's so. It's crazy. I love it. It's crazy. Oh yeah. People who have been following me talking about the MCU for a while have heard me talk about how I just want it to be weirder. Yeah. (laughs) And they're getting there, right? Right. And I don't expect them to go whole hog brotherhood of the shield necessarily. Mm -hmm. But I'm also kind of like, you guys could push this envelope. (laughs) You know, (laughs) just saying it has been otter. Uh huh. Okay. Okay. All right. Let's be more normal and talk about Jarvis. (laughs) Oh, I love Jarvis. I love Jarvis, too, and I think I love him way more in the MCU than I do in the comics. Uh He's fine in the comics. It's just kind of a different, a whole different thing. So comics Edwin Jarvis has actually probably a more colorful life than the Mm -hmm. show's Jarvis, and that's saying something. Sure. Mm -hmm. Because his most boring life was flying with the RAF during World War II. Oh, God. But then he leaves England for America and becomes the manservant of Howard and Maria Stark, which is totally different than a butler, but whatever. Sure. After Howard and Maria die, he becomes caretaker of their mansion. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Tony doesn't really live there. It's still being maintained by Jarvis. That mansion would eventually be donated to the Maria Stark Foundation, mm-hmm. which is the charitable organization that funds and maintains the Avengers. Okay. So the Avengers is actually like a 501c3 okay. in the Marvel <laughs> Universe, which, okay. to be honest, makes so much more sense than just funding it right out of Stark International's sure. pocket. I mean, sure. just saying. But in mm-hmm. the process... Edwin Jarvis finds himself to be manservant to Marvel Earth's mightiest heroes. Wow. Yeah. He's he's the Avengers butler, you know. Right. Oh, my God. Because of his association with the Avengers, Jarvis has been imperiled many times. Oh, sure. He's been kidnapped. He's been nearly crushed. He's met aliens and gods. He's been beaten nearly to death by Mr. Hyde while Captain America was forced to watch. He's <laughs> fought Doombots. He babysat the cask of ancient winters and other items of ridiculous power. You may remember that one from Thor. Sure. Mm-hmm. He became pen pals with a South American girl who grew up to be a superhero named Silverclaw. <laughs> Jarvis was replaced by shape-changing scrolls and sort of mm-hmm. kind of dated Spider-Man's Aunt May. No way. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, that was technically the scroll in disguise as Jarvis, but still. <laughs> Comics, everybody. Yeah. He has most recently mentored the unstoppable wasp and nearly died from a parasitic alien living in his head. Oh, my God. And even after all that, the only time he ever quit was when Tony Stark was too drunk. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's the only time he ever walked. Brain parasites are fine, but Tony Stark dipping into that bottle. Will not have it. Jarvis has standards. I'm making a joke, but I actually Mm kind of think that's a pretty cool part of his character. That He's like, the rest of this is in the line of duty as the Mm -hmm. Avengers butler, but I don't have to deal with your drunk, annoying ass. I like that. Right? Yeah. He has a line in the sand. I think that's good. Yeah. Like some of this, look, I'm proud to serve the Avengers in any way that I can. I don't have to serve a drunk millionaire. Right. Mm -hmm. I got options. So... (laughs) We also have the return, sort of. I mean, or he was barely in another movie, but we mm-hmm. have Anton Vanko. Sure. Mm-hmm. You'll recall the villain from Iron Man 2 was Ivan Vanko, who built mm-hmm. an arc reactor from plans his father, Anton, inexplicably had. Sure. <laughs> As we discovered there, Anton used to work with Howard. Then Howard became jealous of his genius or was just a jerk. We don't even mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. And he had Vanko accused of treason and deported. Yes. The young guy in Stark's lab is that Anton Vanko. Wow. So I won't go back into all of the comic stuff because you can hear it in Iron Man 2. But do remember mm-hmm. that comic book wise, Anton Vanko was the first Soviet enemy for Iron Man. The mm-hmm. electrified and armored Crimson Dynamo. Uh-huh. So for more details, refer to the Iron Man 2 episode. Yes. <laughs> now this one. Okay. Leviathan. We got to talk okay. a little bit about Leviathan. Yes. For the purposes of Agent Carter, Leviathan appears to essentially be the Soviet Union's answer to the SSR and Hydra. Mm -hmm. That's nothing to sneeze at, since it's apparently responsible for the Red Room and Black Widow. Mm -hmm. So my headcanon is that all the graduates from the Red Room are Black Widows, but Natasha is like the Black Widow. That's Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But just like Howard Stark, the comics Leviathan is so much weirder. (laughs) Right. I may have mentioned Leonardo da Vinci is immortal and likes messing around with spies. (laughs) He brought several of the greatest espionage agents the world had ever known together and promised them that if they worked as a team, 
as the yes. great wheel of the Zodiac towards his ends, uh-huh. he would reward them with great power and equipment and ability to work towards their own agendas. Mm-hmm. You might recognize a couple of these names. Nick Fury, Dum Dum Dugan, <laughs> Baron Strucker. You may not know Ooh. him. He's actually the guy that founded Hydra in the comics, not Red Skull. Red Skull was oh, busy okay. doing other things. Yeah. No, Baron Strucker. A variation on that name you're going to see in Ages of S.H.I.E.L.D. later, no spoils, but there's oh. a reference to that. There's a reference to that. That name pops up. Although I think, he, I think he's Baron Von Strucker there, but I'm, yes, I can't swear that's, by it. Yes, he's, that, is, that is the same guy. He's also okay. in an end credit scene in something before Age of Ultron. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, he's part of the more interesting bits of Age of Ultron before the credits roll at the beginning. Interesting. So okay. we'll... You're already hearing my Age of Ultron axes. I'll stop grinding them now. <laughs> As you can imagine, putting a bunch of super spies into one room and making them play nice mm-hmm. goes predictably poorly. Sure. <laughs> we get several new espionage organizations out of the deal. We get S.H.I.E.L.D. Mm-hmm. We get a mm-hmm. reinvigorated Hydra. We get a band of mystical ninjas called J- The Hand. We'll talk mm-hmm. more about them in Netflix series. And we get the Eastern Bloc's super secret group, Leviathan. Uh-huh. At some point, Leviathan goes deep underground when 1,000 of the finest Eastern European operatives go into cold storage. Now, that is both capital C, capital S, the name of a installation, and also uh-huh. literal. They freeze them and thaw them out as necessary for missions. Okay. Okay. Now, if that sounds familiar, it should. The Winter Soldier uh-huh. of the comics is one of those operatives. Uh-huh. In the comics, Bucky is put to work by the Soviets, not Hydra. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's why he's Winter Soldier and he's got a red star on his arm. And mm-hmm. he's also kind of vaguely Russian in the movies, which I think they get around by Hydra infiltrating everywhere. And we'll talk yeah. way more about that then. But just so you know, he he wasn't a special snowflake, All quite right. literally. Mm-hmm. So there's pretty much a never-ending three-way war between Hydra, S.H.I.E.L.D., and Leviathan, although Hydra and Leviathan usually seem more interested in killing each other than S.H.I.E.L.D. Okay. All right. <laughs> they got they really dislike one another specifically. Mm-hmm. Now, here is where I see if I'm swerving way outside of my comic book history lane. We'll see. Okay. But I have to talk about SpyFi. Uh-huh. So, SpyFi, are you familiar with this term, Lonnie? I am not familiar with it, but I mean, I take a quick look at it and I'm kind of getting a sense for it. Right. Exactly. Uh Exactly. It's kind of a subgenre of espionage fiction that incorporates sci-fi, science fiction elements, Mm -hmm. and often but not always works against a Cold War backdrop. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. One reason that's usually the case, that the Cold War is usually the the framing device, is that this became huge in the 60s. Sure. It's when S.H.I.E.L.D. debuted, but you've got your weirder James Bond offerings. You've got Mm -hmm. Man from U.N.C.L.E. and The Girl from U.N.C.L.E. You've Mm -hmm. got the non-Marvel but very British Avengers who are Mm -hmm. amazing You've got Our Man Flint, Mission Impossible comes at this time. You have parody versions like Get Smart. Sure. Mm-hmm. You have very serious ones like Secret Agent Man that mm-hmm. kind of morphs into this weird psychedelic thought experiment, The Prisoner. Uh-huh. And okay. all of that just barely scratches the surface of what was yeah. going on at the time. It, it was a big deal then. Mm-hmm. While it will kind of tamp down and flare back up, it never really stops because we've had Alias. We've had Mm -hmm. three or four Spy Kids movies. Mm -hmm. We've had Kim Possible in cartoons and Totally Spies. We've had La Femme Nikita. Mm -hmm. 
you've got a bunch of film franchises that spawn from those older examples. Like we've had a man from uncle movie that I would love to see about nine sequels to. We've got all these yeah. mission impossibles, mm-hmm. you know, the Kingsman service is very much yeah. in this subgenre, right? Mm-hmm. It's usually typified by slick gadgets that are hidden in innocuous items, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, sure. like Peggy's flash mm-hmm. bomb and, um, uh, the, the pen lipstick. camera. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. Pass out. And the, the one I really enjoyed was the uh, safe cracking watch. Yes. I that really was cool. liked that. Yeah. yeah. Be- because you can completely believe that it's doing something of the period, but it's all, yeah. and it's got a visual element. Like it's turning the hands of the clock while it's turning yeah. the safe. And it's basically perfect. That is a perfect yes. example of what I'm talking about. <laughs> but in addition to that kind of sci fi laser watch kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. You've got this kind of over-the-top approach to spying where blowing stuff up and riding cool vehicles, <laughs> you know, <laughs> is the way that we get espionage done. You also have mad geniuses trying to ransom the world when they aren't, you know, destroying democracy or communism or both. Mm-hmm. And in your protagonist, you have a very suave and quippy approach to espionage. Sure, yeah. I mean, James Bond is your easy, obvious you know, more right. mm-hmm. more back in the day when you had, mm-hmm. as I mentioned, laser watches and missiles behind your headlights and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Now, I bring all of this up partly because I absolutely love it, but it also ties into Agent Carter. I mean, Agent yeah. Carter owes more to these influences than almost anything else, I think. Wow. Mm-hmm. And the Cold War is weirder in the Marvel Cinematic Universe than mm-hmm. it is in the real world, obviously. Mm-hmm. So it's just all the more an excuse for you to have that spy versus spy, fate of the world hanging in the balance, weird science stuff, but with uh-huh. the knowledge that that's going to sort of explode and spill out into the wider world with the Avengers. And, oh, by the way, we also already know there's aliens. I mean, you, you know, it just yeah. mm-hmm. doing it within the MCU framework just capitalizes on all the stuff that SpyFi normally does with also, again, that world building sense of history, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you like Agent Carter, I am going to recommend almost every one of those bits of fiction that I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Some of them I haven't seen, so so I can't, you know, say full bore, go see them. And some of them are very <laughs> much of their time when you're going to a 60s show, be prepared, you right. know. <laughs> uh, but I love this stuff so much that I wrote one of these. Uh-huh. And so if you think I sound like I know what I'm talking about, you might go give a read to the teen agents in the plundered parent protocol. Okay. Now, what is that? Is that like a um, graphic novel? Is that a regular novel? What you got there? It is somewhere between a young readers and young adult novel. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. And it's about three girls whose uh, very interesting and important fathers get kidnapped on their 13th birthday. Wow. By robots. <laughs> and they are given the opportunity to join Teen, the Teenage Extra Normal Emergency Network. Uh-huh. I like it. In order to save their dads. Hijinks and Sue. Yeah. I think that sounds great. We'll have a link to it in the show notes so people can grab it if they want. I, I really feel like if you like Agent Carter, you will probably like that kind of thing. It's very much in the same vein. I was drawing from a lot of the same influences that I think Marcus and McFeely were for this show. I love it. I think that sounds really great. Well, that is a powerful bit of comic books history. And I have to say, really fascinating. I love that whole context that you've given to the show. And I mean, I have loved this show 
since it premiered. I watched it week to week, which is something that I do not do regularly. <laughs> I usually wait. If I'm watching something week to week, I really super love it. I usually wait until it's all available and then I binge it later. Um, but Agent Carter, I fell in love with her in Captain America. And then when I saw the first episode of this, I was like, yes, this is absolutely my thing. Um, so I was very, very happy, you know, when it came on and very, very sad when it got canceled. Um, but Peggy Carter was phase one's standout female character. I mean, not that there was really that high a bar as we've already covered all of the phase one movies. You've heard us talk about that quite a bit. Um, and after the Marvel one shot called Agent Carter was screened at the 2013 San Diego Comic-Con, Marvel went ahead into development on this series. And originally the series showrunners were slated to be Tara Butters and Michelle Fazekas, who are executive producers on the show um, and who've worked together as a production team on a number of shows, including Law and Order SVU. They work together on Joss Whedon's Dollhouse, which has a connection to this um, because, well, it's kind of because Joss Whedon is executive producer over on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which is somewhat related to Peggy Carter, of course, part of the whole MCU, also wrote Avengers and directed Avengers. Um, and most recently, uh, Butters and Fizikas worked together on uh, Kevin Probably Saves the World. That is the show that they're currently both executive producing. So in the end, while Butters and Fazekas did work as executive producers on Agent Carter, showrunner creator status went to Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely, of course, who we know they've written all of the Captain America movies so far. And they wrote Avengers Infinity War, which is recently released. So that's pretty cool. Um, and I have to say... You know, this is, you know, the rare Marvel vehicle that stars a woman, um, even though there are not that many women in the actual show itself. You're dealing with a time where we didn't have a lot of women working in this kind of environment. So fair enough. Um, so I was kind of annoyed that the female original showrunner creators kind of got moved away from the spotlight and that we had two men step into that. But at the same time, I can't complain too much because Marvel Marcus and McFeely are really good at what they do. I love their work. I've loved their movies. So I'm not whining too much. I'm just whining a little bit. <laughs> and I, I feel like, I mean, I was not, I'm not even going to try and guess what was actually kind of going on behind the scenes sure. there. Mm -hmm. But they're a very proven Marvel commodity. And yes. when I mention I wish the Marvel Cinematic Universe were weirder, I think that's because they played it very safe for quite mm -hmm. a while, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's the experiment that wasn't supposed to work, you know, right. and, and we're definitely getting out of that. So I'm going to stop complaining about it <laughs> by Guardians of the Galaxy, I think. But, yes. <laughs> but I mean, they're a very proven Marvel commodity, but mm -hmm. those guys were smart enough to be like, we probably need some executive producers that can very much speak to the female perspective, to the woman's perspective. Right. Can you guys stick around? You know, <laughs> there are women on the staff. We've got, you know, so I mean, all of that, like it, it doesn't bother me too much because they're really good. And because the way that they deal with, as we're going to see when we talk about uh, these episodes, the way that they deal with those issues is actually yes. really, really relevant, really, yes. you know, really woke. If I dare say that now, because that's one of these really terrible. <laughs> Terrible words that is 
come to be uh, just really overused in, in very bad ways. But but they do have a, a very um, kind of progressive understanding of how these issues work. Um, and, and I like the way that they address it. So I whine a little, but not too much. Um, the show ended up running for only two seasons, which is heartbreaking to me. Uh, we have Same. eight episodes in season one, and um, that aired early in 2015. Ten episodes for season two, which aired early in 2016. Both of these aired during the hiatus for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So they sort of slid it into this space where the people who were watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. could slip over into Peggy Carter. Uh, that didn't happen quite as organically as I think that they would have hoped. Um, didn't have the viewership numbers that they wanted. Of course, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. didn't really have great viewership numbers either. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., as we will discuss when we get there, uh, really got their numbers in the uh, Live Plus 7 numbers, which is uh, how many people are watching the show from the time that it airs live through seven days on their DVRs, which is something that that they can you know record now and are actually very significant numbers. Um, but at the time, we were still kind of figuring all of that out. And the viewership for Peggy Carter, while the critical response was, was excellent, uh, the viewership for Peggy Carter never really took off the way that they wanted it to. Um, so in this day of resurrected television shows, however, there has been an almost constant hum of rumors about the show being brought back somewhere Netflix, Hulu, <laughs> somewhere. Somebody's got to want to bring this back. So I still remain hopeful. Um, the stars, the producers have uh, dropped, you know, basically in interviews, you'll see it all the time where Haley Atwell, who plays um, plays Peggy Carter, will talk about, you know, coming back for the show and how she would love to do it. And the um, Butters and Fazekas have been quoted a number of times talking about how they would absolutely love to do it. So I feel like what they're doing is kind of basically put out the producer's version of an OK Cupid profile. They're like, hey, you know, we're looking for somebody. <laughs> Swipe Carter, you guys. Swipe Come on. Swipe Carter, I'm telling you. So, um, so Agent Carter brought back, as I said, Haley Atwell as Peggy Carter, um, who is fantastic in this role. I absolutely love her. I think she's so capable. She's so fun. And one of the things that you see, you mentioned um, Alias uh, earlier when you were talking about that kind of spy fi stuff. Um, and Alias starring Jennifer Garner, you know, early 2000s was a spy show. And she was so unexpectedly great. Like I look at Jennifer Garner and I don't expect great acting, Like, but she was actually really good in that role. And she would do all these different accents and put on all these different personas. And for me, I think my favorite part of Haley Atwell is when she does that, when she has yes. that kind of persona, she's so great. She's so committed, really, really fun and brings everything that she had in, um, in Captain America and brings it to this and so much more. So I love seeing her in that. Um, we also have Chad Michael Murray, who some may remember as one of the many floppy haired douchebag suitors of Gilmore Girls, Rory Gilmore. And he stars as Jack Thompson, one of the many misogynistic douchebags of the 1940s New York office of the SSR. Again, proto-shield, as we have discussed. Um, of oh, course, no. What? I feel so old. I did not recognize him. Yes. Because he is. Now, now you got it, right? Isn't kind it of a child on that show. and He is a, he is a baby child on that oh show. Oh, my gosh. Yes. yes. And it, it makes me feel both old. <laughs> 
to see him grow up like that, you know, and um, and also just like I, I, it took me a while to figure out where I had seen him before. And once Absolutely. I put it together, I was like, oh, my God. Oh, oh my man. God. Well, and somebody else you may have seen before, if you are a big Joss Whedon fan, is Enver Jokai, who stars as Daniel Sousa, the injured World War II veteran and SSR agent whose sympathy and respect for Peggy Carter shows him to be also an exceptional man. You may remember him from uh, Joss Whedon's Dollhouse. He was fantastic in that. Um, and that's where I first noticed him from. So when I saw him, I was like, oh my God, it's Victor. I think his name was Victor. <laughs> I can't remember. It's been a little while. But one of the things that I really love about the um, the character of Daniel Sousa is that the showrunners are giving us a sexy, capable, competent character with a disability whose injury does not take him out of the run as a romantic interest for Peggy. And I absolutely love that. While we talk so much about very important issues of representation for women, for people of color, um, one of the classifications, for gay people, like one of the classifications that we tend to overlook are people with disabilities. That if anybody is made invisible in our, you know, our current culture, it is people with disabilities. And again, to bring somebody with a disability into the story, and not make that disability something that makes them invisible, that makes them, it takes them out of the running for romantic relationships, that they simply become the person with that disability in the office, you know, rather than a, a member of the group like everybody else. Um, I think that what they've done with Daniel Sousa is absolutely perfect. It's a lovely bit of representation. We even see in these four episodes how he uses, you know, his cane as a tool. You know, mm -hmm. so um, so all of this stuff, I think, is absolutely fantastic. I really, really enjoy that. And I really, really enjoy Enver Jokai in that role. Um, of course, as you mentioned, we have Dominic Cooper coming back as Howard Stark. Um, and you can see that the Tony Stark apple did not fall far from this billionaire playboy genius philanthropist snake <laughs> in the grass tree. Um, so I, I'm really enjoying him. I do see a lot of Tony in this Howard, in this version of Howard. Um, which is really interesting because it doesn't seem like Tony ever met this version of Howard. I feel like Tony would be horrified to realize how he has accidentally sideways become just like his dad in yeah. trying to be nothing like his dad. Yeah. No, it's it's very, very interesting. So I kind of really enjoy this version of Howard Stark, although it's funny because I like Dominic Cooper and I think that he's good in the role, but... I expect, I don't know why, because he's Tony's father, like I am expecting a Robert Downey Jr. level of charisma and charm. And that doesn't exist in a lot of people. Like that is a very, very rare thing. You yeah, know? And so that's a good while point. I like him, I, he always somewhat falls flat for me, you know, as the young Howard Stark, because I'm wanting him to be, you know, at the level with Robert Downey Jr. And I just don't think that that happens very often. You know, that is a, a rare, you know, combination of magic. So I hate to say that I'm always a little disappointed with Howard Stark, but I'm always a little disappointed with Howard Stark. Let me spin that a slightly different way that may make oh, you yes. happier. Okay, yes, please. Because do. I agree with you, right? Like, he's very much doing the Tony Stark kind of things, yeah, but not quite as well as we get in Tony Stark. And maybe that's better because maybe. we don't really want to have Tony out Tonied. No, very true. Right? We want very nods true. in that. We want to see, ah, we can tie these characters together. He's doing exactly the thing that we need him to do here that reminds us of Tony, but not right. as well as Tony mm -hmm. because nobody is better than Tony Stark. 
I agree with you, but also maybe think that that's, I don't want to say on purpose, because that mm-hmm. is a finely tuned amount of acting right there. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I would almost like that better than if Howard made me wish he were around all the time. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, if it was somebody who we wish was pl- actually playing Tony Stark instead of Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, no, that's right? True. That's true. That's true. I think you got a good spin on that. I think you got a good spin. So, you know, going from mild disappointment that I wish I wasn't feeling to, like, incredible <laughs> happiness with the performance, we have James Darcy as the original Jarvis, Howard Stark's loyal. And, you know, I mean, you had him pegged as, like, man, but they actually call him a butler. He refers to himself in these episodes as Howard Stark's butler. But, you know, it's a little bit more than that. I mean, you know, I guess he's something between manservant and butler, where the job description also includes espionage and almost getting killed like a lot. Um, But I absolutely love the platonic relationship and chemistry between Jarvis and Peggy. Um, I love seeing that build up. I think that's really sweet. And James Darcy, I think, is incredibly charming, incredibly fun. I love every minute he's on screen. Yeah, I agree. He is um, an unexpected gem. Mm -hmm. Like uh, when I showed up to the show, I was expecting Peggy to be amazing. And I was expecting all these people that work around her to be amazing at being douchebags. Right. And, you know, of course, we know Dominic Cooper, what he's going to do. And I was like, I mean, Jarvis, am I going to care? Oh, I super care. Oh, I no. super care. <laughs> he's he's so fantastic. I love him. I think he's perfect in that role. Um, we also get some fun with Lindsay Fonseca, who plays Peggy's waitress buddy. And I guess you can call her the best friend, although Peggy does play her cards pretty close to the chest with pretty much everyone but Jarvis and Howard Stark. Um, but yeah, you know, she's kind of in the best friend role. Uh, she's really fun as Angie Martinelli, the single gal who's trying constantly trying to pull Peggy into the regular world, you know, and keep her connected with the regular world, which I think is a really really nice thing because of that desire to pull Peggy into the regular world. She pulls Peggy into the Griffith hotel for women, um, which opens up lots of opportunities for fun. One of them being Megan Fay, who plays the wonderful and super hardcore Miriam Fry, uh, the governess, I guess you would call her of the Griffith hotel for women. No one you want to cross probably even with all of these other people that Peggy's been chasing around and shooting at probably the scariest person in agent Carter, I would say. (laughs) I at least likely to straight murder you. Mm-hmm. Most person I wouldn't want to be yelled at by. Yeah, no, she's she's very super hardcore. And then one of the other lovely gems that we get from the Griffith Hotel for Women, which we don't really get revealed until about the end of these four episodes, um, is Bridget Regan as Dottie Underwood. Um, she's just getting interesting at the end of these episodes. Um, I'm very excited about talking about Dottie. I think that she has a history that is going to be really, really interesting. I cannot wait to get into that. But in these four episodes, we don't get a whole lot of her. So I'm just going to say I love what we get. I will also say that if the big reveal at the end of episode four was a surprise to you, go back and look for all the times that Dottie crops up before yeah. you know something else is going on with her when she's asking to get a gravy purse made. Yep. And she's <laughs> just so genuinely delighted at the idea, except we know damn good and well later she's not genuinely delighted. It's pretty great. Yes. She no, is playing she it is. to like 
layers of acting going on oh there. Oh my God, you know? no. The acting that is happening, Bridget Regan is amazing in that role. When you think about everything that she's being asked to do, which at first seems simple and backgroundy, you know, um, yeah. and becomes so much more complicated later, which is really, really interesting. So these are like the, the great, like the major characters that we've got for the first handful of episodes. Um, there are more great characters to come. We're going to talk about them as we go. Um, but talking a little bit about the critical response for Agent Carter, um, Agent Carter comes in at a very respectable 88% on the Rotten Tomatoes score and has an 8 out of 10 on IMDb, which tracks a somewhat self-selected viewer response. Um, but still, for IMDb, an 8 out of 10 is a fairly high score. So people who watch Agent Carter tend to like Agent Carter. It's just that a not, not enough people watched it to keep it on the air at the time in a traditional broadcast you know, formula. So I am hoping that the OK Cupid, somebody's going to swipe right on Agent Carter, make this thing happen, bring these Hashtag people back together. Hashtag swipe Carter. Absolutely. Hashtag, Hashtag listen up a-holes. Hashtag I swipe know. Carter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now we can get into talking about these four episodes of this show. Um, now, is this the first time that you watched Agent Carter? Did you watch it before this? I have seen it before this. Okay. All right. So you did see this before. Mm -hmm. I did not watch it on its original broadcast error because mm -hmm. I and boy we are going to get to this this is not trying to start something but I <laughs> felt very disappointed by Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah. and so when Agent Carter came on I kind of missed that it existed Yeah. because they mm -hmm. were trying to hitch it to that Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. wagon Right. Um, I just kind of missed it and then found out later that it existed so when it as soon as it hit a streaming service I was all over it so this yeah. is this is my third watch probably third or fourth mm -hmm. watch something like that mm -hmm. but that's that's how it happens so no not my first viewing but my yeah. first close viewing no and that's the thing too like i really enjoyed agent carter when i watched it originally through um and i haven't watched it since you know its original run um going back to it and watching it in detail i enjoyed it even more mm-hmm I mean, and you know, that's always a risk when you go back to look at something critically, you know, sometimes something you love, you can be like, Ooh, up close. This isn't so good. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but agent Carter does great under like real serious critical observation. Yeah. Not everything is built to hold the weight of a critical yep. look. And that's, that's also fine, mm -hmm. but it is really a joyful experience for me, especially when I go and find something that looks so much like kind of trash media yes. trash mm -hmm. genre stuff mm -hmm. that can then hold up under yeah. the scrutiny and and peggy carter does it all day yeah yeah, mm -hmm. yeah no it's it's absolutely fantastic so let's go ahead and get started i think the first thing i mean it's the first thing the first 10 minutes it's everything it's in the setup of the of the whole story is this idea that peggy is a woman in a man's world right it's made abundantly clear in so many ways mm -hmm. you know <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, so Peggy Carter is, she's smarter. She's more capable than any of the guys in the office, with the possible exception of Sousa. Um, and yet no one takes her seriously at all. So we have these first 10 minutes of the first episode, which is now is not the end, right? Um, so we w watch this first 10 minutes and it is just Peggy constantly, you know, she's supposed to be covering the phones, right? The chief, Chief Dooley tells her to cover the phones, which is like one of my favorite things. Agent Carter, we just caught a red ball out of DC, all hands on deck, meaning cover the phones. Rose, forward all calls to the briefing room. Covered, shall we? I 
love that with Peggy. I love when she like right from the beginning, instead of seeing a Peggy that has been kind of shut down by this environment, somebody who's kind of given up because she is not allowed to do these things. Somebody who says, you know, okay, and goes and answers the phones while the chief and all the guys talk in the briefing room. She pushes, she gets herself in there. She's not sitting down for anything, you know, um, which I absolutely love. And I think that this is so great. We're setting up that these guys are assholes. Um, and then we have this, this briefing room moment, which is really nice. And Sousa kind of stands up for her. Sounds like Carter knew a lot of guys during the war. What'd you say, Krasinski? <laughs> I wasn't talking to you. You're the lady in apology. Oh. You standing up for her now, Susan? Better hurry, I don't have all day. Huh? Oh, okay. <laughs> Agent Sousa, about what you just did. Ah, uh, don't worry about it. Is I that... wish you hadn't. You're an agent, they treat you like a secretary. I just wanted that. And I'm grateful. I'm also more than capable of handling whatever these adolescents throw at me. Yes, ma'am. Doesn't mean I have to like it. Well, that's another thing we have in common. Instead of getting angry, which is actually what I was expecting when I first watched this, when he stood up for her and he was all nice and he was the good guy and she's not grateful that he was going to be like, well, I'm just trying to be nice. I'm just trying to stand up. I'm trying to be better than these guys. Instead, he listens to her, completely understands it and says, well, I don't have to like it, you know? And... I absolutely love the respect that he shows for her in that moment. So what did you think of Sousa when you first started watching this? I think that there is a reason so many people ship Peggy and Sousa. Mm -hmm. Like we don't have yet an in-fiction confirmation of who this mysterious husband that Captain America saved yes. back in the mm -hmm. war mm -hmm. way before Peggy had ever met him. You know, we have no confirmation of this yet. Right. But mm -hmm. I know a bunch of people who are really invested in this, and I will include myself here, Yeah. feel like it's got to be Sousa. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, part of that is this is the only part of Peggy's story we're seeing so far. So maybe somebody else will crop up in the mm -hmm. future. But I mean, mm -hmm. he makes so much sense for all yeah. the reasons you said. He, yeah. Came to her defense, which I also felt was like the right thing to do in that moment. And, yeah. and she could have said, thank you, and it would have been fine. Mm -hmm. But instead, because Peggy is who Peggy is, she said, that's not actually helping me. And he got it. And that is so, or yes. even, you know what? He probably didn't get it. I'm going to be <laughs> honest. It's better if he didn't get it, but he still heard her. He listened and respected her. Yes. And that is something that I did. I was not expecting in that moment in the same way that I wasn't expecting her to to put the phones, to have Rose hold the phones. You mm -hmm. know, um, I wasn't expecting her to um, to like stand to say that that's not OK, you know, that I don't need that help or whatever. And I was not expecting him to um, to respect it. You yes. know, I was expecting him to be like, oh, you should be grateful because here I am standing up for you and it, make it about him. It was never this is the thing that I love is him standing up for her was never about him. It was never about look what a great guy I am. Yes. It was about let me make this easier for Peggy. And when she says that doesn't make it easier for me, he says, all right, because my goal is to make it easier for you. I'm a shut up now. I yeah. love the respect that he shows for her in that moment. And the fact that I wasn't even expecting that. You know, because I'm so used to this thing where, you know, people are like, oh, well, I did this for you. You should be grateful. That's not what, you know, an, an ally does. Like an ally 
tries to make it easier for you in whatever way is easier for you. And if you say that's not easier for me, they shut up and they listen. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And and it sets up one of the pieces of more serious espionage fiction that I really enjoy, which is mm-hmm. where your protagonist has to compromise core yeah. bits of themselves to get the job done. Oh, yeah. How many times is Peggy forced to undermine Sousa? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. How many times is she actively sabotaging yeah. his part of the investigation because it's too close to what she's doing? And because he's the only one good enough to find her. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really nice. Or he gets the crap detail. Uh-huh. Right? Like, nobody wants to mess around with uh, developing photos. Give it to right. that guy. Right. And that accidentally puts him close to Peggy because that's kind of where you're going to catch her is in the detail. She's very good. Exactly. Yeah. That ties into my favorite part. We'll talk more later. But just every time that Peggy has to undermine her core self oh, yeah. in order to get the job done, mm-hmm. that is a prime piece of, again, more usually more serious espionage yeah. uh, mm-hmm. work. But that they were managed to fold that into this otherwise kind of broad spy-fi. Mm-hmm. They don't dwell on it hard. That's something yeah. I picked up on one of my later viewings where I was like, oh, my God, the only friend she has in this office, she's actively undermining. Exactly. And she has no choice. She has to do it, you know, and um, and it's it's just really nicely done. And so it sets up this friendship and this real genuine respect between her and Sousa. And at the same time, a real antagonism between them. You know, which I think is just beautifully, and it has that wonderful internal conflict going on. You know, I mean, it's got wonderful stuff. And meanwhile, you know, she's got the rest of these guys, these idiots at work, being such jerks. Like, we have this moment, like, right on the heels of this lovely moment with Sousa, right? We have on the heels of that Thompson coming in. Carter, I'm going to be a little busy with your friend Stark. If you don't mind, these surveillance reports need to be filed in. You're really so much better at that kind of thing. What kind of thing is that, Agent Thompson? The alphabet. I can teach you. Let's start with words beginning with A. (laughs) Thanks, kid. Adios. Fantastic. I love it. All of this, all of this is in the first 10 minutes. All of this, we've established Peggy's world. We've established what she's dealing with. We've, We've established that she wants to be doing more than she's given. And it's on the heels of that that we get Howard Stark coming in and just handing her on a platter the adventure that she wants. Do you mind if I hang some lampshades on the espionage and spy-fi stuff that they also set up? Yes, 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 go, this? go. Okay. Because there's there's a shocking amount of stuff going on in this setup, right? <laughs> for one thing, there is, there is a viewpoint where her getting ready for work with the stockings and all the stuff could be kind of prurient. Mm-hmm. And, but, and let's face the fact that Haley Atwell is a very attractive woman. Yeah. So go ahead, you you know, use it. She's going to use that to her advantage as Peggy, like in character right. as Peggy mm-hmm. Carter. But you have this very mundane getting ready for work. Yes. Her roommate comes in and talks about how all these women are being fired because men are coming back from the front and she had to teach somebody how to use a rivet gun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Literally the same as Peggy, just the job is different, right? Exactly. So mm-hmm. we start with this very mundane. We're starting to shift into a little weirder, the weirder bits of the period, you know, Mm -hmm. all of that conversation is going on while she is quietly putting a gun in her purse. Right. (laughs) 
Oh, you have no idea, she says. I mean, you know, and then she also stands out on the street, which calls back to that getting ready. She's got Mm -hmm. the red hat, the blue. She really stands out because Peggy is a standout human being, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the spy fi stuff that I really liked, she goes to work at the phone company. Yes. Only the operator moves the little operator plugs around and the door opens. <laughs> now, you saw this in the first Avenger, by the way. Uh-huh. uh-huh. You remember Project Rebirth was like behind this kind of uh, antique shop facade. Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is straight man from uncle stuff. Their oh, wow. headquarters were, I-, I believe it was a tailor. Uh-huh. The the person inside the tailor would like do a certain thing with the big pants pressing Mm-hmm. steam machine and the door you know the wall would open and they and the two main characters could go on into uncle you know mm-hmm. they are right away telling me yeah. uh, those of us who have eyes to see <laughs> yes it's gonna be this show you guys mm-hmm. are at home you know right while also telling us a bunch of character stuff and world stuff you know mm-hmm. before peggy is confronted with her jerk co-workers we know her roommate Right. Has the mm-hmm. same problems. I mean, mm-hmm. Peggy is going to stand out. Yeah. She is a hero to the rest of the ladies in that office. Yeah. Those knowing grins, the I love the hat. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe they don't even know how she gets treated on the other side. But even if they do, they're like, that's our lady. Well, I mean, she's the only one they open the door for. She's the only woman they're opening the door for. Like That we ever see. Where yeah. she is, even where she is, she's gotten into a place that they haven't gotten to. Exactly. And I think that that is something that's got to really mean a lot to those women. And so that moment, you know, when Rose says, love the hat, you know, in the mm-hmm. beginning. And by the way, I love that hat. That has become like an iconic Peggy Carter thing is that hat, you know. Um, all of that is is so great and you can see how Peggy is is you know cracking this glass ceiling you know and making things possible for other women that were not previously possible um you know which brings us to like what a complete badass Peggy is I mean I have to say in the opening episode she disarms a bomb in a bathroom with a <laughs> pair of tweezers and a perfume atomizer I like It is so, and she gathers, she takes this thing. It is so dangerous. It is so delicate. She goes into the bathroom. She's got all of these bottles, you know, that she gathers all of these bottles together. (laughs) And the thing that I love is that she gets all the chemicals together. She disarms this thing. There's smoke everywhere. Her roommate is sleeping in the other room. And one of the bottles, of course, is whiskey. And she just downs a bunch of it. (laughs) She's done. I'm like, this is my girl. I mean, she is so fantastic in all of these moments but you see the sweat as she's disarming the bomb like you see she's not cool all the time but she's capable all the time yeah and i love that there's a callback a little bit to the bathroom thing because jarvis is like here's the stuff you're going to need to diffuse it lord knows where you're going to get that in the middle of the night and she just throws it away leave it to me exactly she's like like, i did the list it's literally on my shelf. Exactly. What are you even here for other than I've to read me things over the phone? Exactly. And she's got it all in her house, you know. Because she knows basic chemistry, right? Exactly. Like it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. She's just prepared, you know. Um, she's so great. You know, she's constantly outsmarting all of these guys, you know, who are not necessarily idiots. I mean, I think, you know, Krasminski 
comes across kind of an idiot. Thompson, we see him getting smarter and smarter as we go. So we see him demonstrating some capability. Dooley kind of seems like an idiot, but most of these guys are nowhere near her level. And she's constantly outsmarting them. I love that moment where she plays the, you know, the hard ass dairy inspector. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which so I think good. is inspired a little bit by Miriam Fry, I would like to say. She does the femme fatale for Spider when she's in his office trying to get the bomb. Um she does this like wonderful shifting into and out of different personas, you know, and she is the one who finds Stark's weapons cache, you know. Mm-hmm. Um she crawls into and out of moving vehicles all the time you know she beats up a guy with a gun on the roof of a moving milk van filled with devastating explosives and she beats up any number of guys twice her sides um after the nearly silent yeah fight of a guy in her knife fight with a guy in her apartment which does the thing you're about to say and i agree go ahead i'm sorry that uh, just i love that fight it's so quiet i know i know it's so great but you know she does all of this in like high heels you know, and often skirts, which are not yeah. that easy to move around in necessarily. So um, all of this, I think, is just so fantastic. And I love when we get to this moment, um, you know, where she's um, she's about to find the cash it's in um, episode number three, Time and Tide. Um, and she comes up against this guy who just like charges at her out of nowhere. Prince told me one of you would be coming. One of me. Yeah, I'm not afraid to kill a woman. Would it make a difference if I told you I won't make it easy? Yeah. He told me that, too. I love that. Her enemies mm-hmm. have a better estimation of her than her co-workers. I know, which I love. I love. They see her for what she truly is. They have to assess her for what she truly is because she's dangerous to them. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas the co-workers and the people who are with her, all they have to do is just keep her down. And they think they're doing that. Which they have all the tools to do. Yeah, absolutely. It is easier to force Peggy to do the lunch orders than it is for Leviathan to stop her from messing up their plans. (laughs) Yes. Absolutely. Um, But the one thing that we see um, her kind of flailing with, you know, and struggling with are these personal relationships, right? Yeah, definitely. She has this moment where she's talking to Jarvis and she says, I seem to have a habit of losing people closest to me. Perhaps losing is too nice a word. I get them killed. And first of all, I don't think that's fair. Like, she doesn't get these people killed. Like, yeah, Colleen, her roommate, kind of bit it wrong time, wrong place, you know? Um, So, I mean, I can sort of understand that. But, like, Steve Rogers, she didn't get him killed. That was not her fault. That was not her decision. You know, that had nothing to do with her, really. I have a couple of thoughts there. Okay. One is that this is more of the more interesting espionage things, where the person who does the spying has to reckon with what that does to her personal life. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it wrecks your personal life. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of your best examples of this are written by people who were actually spies, like uh, John le Carre's, um The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A, a comic book recommendation would be Queen and Country. Greg Rucka wrote a female agent mm-hmm. who has to deal often with what this literally does to her personal life and, she, and how often the people that she comes into contact with 
end up dead, either personally right. or professionally, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I like that they folded this in. I think it's yeah. a reasonable thing for a very responsible person to think, even if it's not entirely fair. Yeah, to be to be cognizant of, especially. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Colleen really puts a fine point on that because Colleen dies because she knows Peggy. That's Barna. Sure. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I kind of feel like her responsibility for Steve might be tied into the fact that she kind of backed him for Project Rebirth. Like, he became her favorite. Yeah. And then she's the one who kind of guilts him into going after Bucky, which puts him on the Captain America path that does end in his death. None of that is fair. Right. I can see her drawing that line, though, you know? Yeah, she holds herself responsible for all these things. And, I mean, this is such a strong woman-led piece that I don't Mm -hmm. want to go crazy for that lost the love of her life thing, except that she says that out loud herself. She She makes that textual. Yeah. And the idea that she blames herself at least partially for that, I think is, I don't know. It's totally not fair. I agree with you. She's not being fair to herself. No, but I understand where it comes from. Yeah. And it's such a look in her head. And it's a conflict, I think, that we see more in women in these positions than we do in men. And I don't watch as many of these types of shows or, or engage with like I, I honestly have never seen a James Bond movie I have no interest in James Bond um, but would you say the men who are in these positions feel that way as much that, that about the personal relationships and are worried that much about their personal um, effect on people I'm gonna I'm gonna split this hair a little bit between yeah more serious espionage fiction and spy fi mm-hmm. yeah because spy fi is very much more about kind of the broad you know, somebody's got a nuclear weapon and is holding the world hostage, you know, right. kind of thing. Uh-huh. You don't get as much personal life. That in personal pull. Yeah. Right. And mm-hmm. when you do, we're usually fridging somebody. Right. I'm mm-hmm. looking at uh, uh, James Bond's uh, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, mm-hmm. where he marries Diana Rigg, who is uh, an amazing actress. She is the very competent person. Emma Peel, the honestly, an, an Agent Carter precursor on mm-hmm. the non-Marvel, very British Avengers. You know, yes. mm-hmm. they get this actress who has spy recognizability to mm-hmm. marry James Bond so they can, spoiler warning for a 40-year-old movie, kill her <laughs> so he can go on a revenge rampage. Like, that's what right. you get. Right, right. right. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I think I even opined to you immediately in the moment that we would never see one of these guys Mm-hmm. Break down in tears right. over their dead roommate. And yet, you should. Like, this yeah. was an innocent person that you had come to know. This is a human face on your job. Right. And men that's are dead because to of have, you. like, human emotional feelings. But we usually do this. I mean, for those of you who've seen Alias, slight spoiler. Um, but Alias, of course, a, a female-led by show like that. Um, it, the first thing is the conflict between her personal life. The first thing to yes. come is the conflict yes. between her personal life and her and her business and her work, you know. And that is a constant source of tension. And I think it's a beautiful source of tension and a necessary source of tension. We see it in the women, you know, Mm -hmm. and her resistance, Peggy's resistance to developing a close relationship with Angie, who is so obviously hurt by all of this, you know, um, is a really kind of fun you know, tension thread, internal conflict thread to sort of pull at. And we have like this lovely moment in the third episode with Angie, where Angie pops into her room and says, I got a bottle of schnapps and half a rhubarb pie. Let's see which one makes us sick first. Oh, sounds lovely, but I was just about to go to bed. It's eight o'clock, Grandma. Come on, tell me about your crappy day. Maybe it'll make me feel better. 
I'm really tired. Maybe some other time. I love this moment with Angie. I love Angie. I think she's fantastic. She is so normal. She brings this element of the regular and the ordinary into, you know, Peggy Carter's extraordinary life. Um, and is somebody that you're just so in love with that you can see Peggy really longing for that friendship and that closeness. Um, but she can't tell Angie everything about her day. She has to keep some of herself back, which I think is what makes the relationship with Jarvis so fantastic because he and he and Howard basically are the only ones that she can truly be herself with. Yeah, I think that this is a place where if it catches your attention that after this incredibly competent series of spy events, mm -hmm. this very capable, very strong woman breaks down in tears over her dead roommate, her mm -hmm. friend. Yeah. I feel like this throws a spotlight on toxic masculinity from a different perspective, right? Mm -hmm. How the idea that toxic masculinity hurts men also yes. because it makes a space where we can't have those kinds of emotions mm -hmm. when we should, yes. you know. Mm -hmm. And so you're absolutely right. You would not see this by and large in male-led spy pieces. Mm -hmm. You just wouldn't because air quotes, we're not allowed, right. you know. To, to have those reactions. Right. Like the, the male spy is supposed to be the one who's so tough, who's so strong, who can take down, you know, any menace, you know, with just a couple of gadgets and some, you know, clever moves, right? You know, who doesn't sweat, who doesn't cry, who is just so beyond tough. And it is, I think it's very toxic to men. I think that that sense of that masculine ideal, which is not at all ideal because it is only part of who this person would be. You know, it's not a holistic vision of who this person is and could be. Um, you know, I think that the fact that we only see this kind of, of internal tension between the personal and the professional um, in these circumstances in our stories with women, I think is a shame. And I, I like seeing, I like seeing that tension. I think it's a great source of internal tension. I think it's a wonderful addition to any story. And I hope that we start seeing those kinds of things with men. I think with Jarvis, we do a little bit. Yes, and we get a nice subversion of the whole thing, too. Yeah, with Jarvis, we get a subversion of the whole thing, you know? <laughs> like, he is the money penny, sort of, you know? Yes, I mean, he is, yeah. He's, he's playing the traditional role of the woman support to the spy, you know? Um, and he's doing this in this wonderful space. He is, he's very gentle, you know, he's kind of a beta male, which I think is really nice, you know, um, and he's got this wife at home who is very important to him. And we're going to be, you know, kind of like expanding on that relationship more as we move through these four episodes and then through the rest of the series. Um, but he's he's kind of torn between although he's not as torn as Peggy because he just lies to his wife about whatever it is that's going on. And on occasion, Peggy will ask him, like, you know, what is what does your wife think you're doing right now? And he's like, oh, you know, getting rid of one of the Howard Stark's paramours, which is a typical thing that happens all the time, you know, um, and very believable, right? Um, but he is in the position where he has to lie to his wife about where he is on, on a regular basis. So he and Peggy are really only truly themselves, completely themselves with each other. And he is allowed as a man to be vulnerable, which I absolutely love. And I think that he's even more vulnerable in a lot of these circumstances than Peggy is. One of the things that I love the most about Jarvis is how much he's getting off on this whole thing. 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, we do find out that he has a history of... Yeah. Okay, so espionage as we know it was kind mm-hmm. of invented in World War II. Sure, sure. <laughs> when he talks about being like an attache to a general and stuff like that, that's yeah. as close to an espionage background as you're going to have Yeah. at mm-hmm. this time. And so that's kind of his stuff. And now he's like, hey... Welcome back. He's getting into it. I mean, it's really, it's kind of fun. Like, we have this moment at the end of the first episode. Get some rest. To be perfectly honest, I'm not sure I'll sleep for days. He's walking away from her in that moment. And you can see the glee on his face that it's not that he's not going to be able to sleep because it was too stressful and too tense and he didn't like it. He's not going to be able to sleep because he is so charged up by this experience. And I love that. Yeah, there's almost a literal like spring in his step. Yes. You know, (laughs) and it's weird the things that I think of because of all these random genre influences. But are you familiar with the movie Clue? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. And in one of the endings, again, spoiler warning for a 30-year-old movie, um, in one of the endings, Mr. Green turns out to be an FBI agent, and he ends the movie with, and I'm going to go home and sleep with my wife. <laughs> and in the because we have this really great setup for Jarvis and his wife and how much he cares about her, yeah, and he's all like, I'm not going to sleep for days. Like, I, I couldn't, unbidden, the <laughs> image of Mr. Green comes to my mind, and right. I'm like... Yeah, that guy's got a lot of energy, you know. <laughs> Mrs. Jarvis is going to be having a good night that night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I love that. And, you know, and one thing that we do is like, you know, like we we're talking about is that we, we have this inversion of this traditional relationship of the the female subordinate, you know, in support mm-hmm. to the male spy, you know. And in the second episode, Bridge and Tunnel, um, we have Peggy going to, you know, follow one of these leads to try to find the milk truck. He drives her there, and he wants to go in with her. Fewer guards than Roxon, at least. Shall I leave the engine running in case you trigger another implosion? Mr. Jarvis, go home to your wife. If you leave now, you may even catch the end of Benny Goodman. Miss Carter, when you called me, I assumed it was because you needed more than a cab. I thought it proved rather useful last time. I agree, but on this occasion, I've got my own ride home. And she's got it all under control you know she's trying not to rely on him i think part of this too speaks to her not wanting that personal relationship not not necessarily wanting to be personally dependent upon somebody else that she's got to be able to handle everything herself um and it's very much like this you know i work alone you know kind of traditional right. rogue hero male thing that we see going on which we will see again repeated later in the marvel cinematic universe um she goes out she gets, you know, Leet Branis at the milk truck. She's trying to fight him. And we have this wonderful moment where Jarvis has disabled the truck. Car trouble. Nothing that can't be fixed. What the hell are you doing here? Mr. Stark asked me to help you, and so I have. I sabotage the motor. Move and I shoot. I thought you'd be more impressed. Well, I'm not. I told you I don't need your help. An ideal butler provides service without being asked. Oh, put it back. I need to drive this thing out of here. Won't be a moment. He's so proud of himself in that moment. I know. I love that. <laughs> He's just beaming. Didn't expect this, did you? <laughs> but you need me. I almost wanted, I expect him to do like some kind of little tap dance. <laughs> right. Again, the spring's in his step, you yeah. know? <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, so I, I love this whole thing. I love the fact that he is not just wanting to be helpful, but is actually really helpful. 
You know, Mm -hmm. he's actually allowing her to do things that she would not be able to do just by herself. And that, that brings them closer and that develops that relationship. What did you think about all that? No, I love, I love every bit of that. I I love that Jarvis helps in the ways that make sense for Jarvis to help, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, He's just about to get away, but Jarvis has removed the distributor cap. Yes. I can think of no more mid forties way to quickly disable a vehicle that you can just put back together in a couple of minutes. Then I just popped off the distributor cap. It's fine. You know, all these various influences, but it made me think of Jonathan from 1999's The Mummy when he's like, but did I panic? No, you know, because he is also the beta male in that movie. And so it just makes me think of everybody's the hero in their own story. Right. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Jarvis is like, and it all would have gone sideways had I not removed the distributor cap is fantastic. (laughs) And he's right there. Like he's doing the thing. He's He's not not, wrong. Yeah. 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 You know, I mean, he's showing himself to be necessary. And we move into this a little bit later in this one scene which I read a certain way. I'm going to want your opinion on this because this is a very complicated thing. But we have this moment later. Her leg is hurt and he's stitching her up. Your line of work requires support. People who care about your well-being can be there to stitch up your wounds. If I allow people to get close to me, I'm putting them in danger. So your solution is to remove yourself from the world you wish to protect. Where's the sense in that? Now, here we have them, right? Right after this moment. You know, he's he's talking about his his position as a support person to her. He's got his hand on her knee, right? He is bent before her, tending to a wound on her knee. Um, this feels very romantic to me. Like they've had a platonic kind of thing going on. And I know we stress his devotion to his wife. But I read things in their developing relationship that kind of go into this romantic area. Did you read that the same way that I read it? I see where you're coming from, but I also honestly never read it that way. And I think it's because of a kind of conglomeration of things Mm -hmm. about these characters, right? Like we've established that there's not really a space in Peggy's heart for love right now because of Steve. Right. And he's married to a woman that he... You know, it it's clear he adores. Yes, yes. I mean, devoted to her. Yeah. And and I guess I mean, if I'm if I'm honest about like my own experiences, as a man devoted to his wife but has many close friendships with women, mm-hmm. despite whatever situations may look like from someone outside, they don't go to that place because mm-hmm. we're friends, right? right. Mm-hmm. Like the healthy male-female relationship that doesn't have to become something else is really great. It's not something we get as often as I would like in fiction. Mm -hmm. And I feel like while there's definitely some interesting framing to this scene that could be taken romantic, maybe they were leaving it there if they ever wanted to pick it back up. I just never read it that way because this woman is devoted to the memory of this man. This man is devoted to the wife he has at home. Mm-hmm. they are able to be in this space without it getting weird because of those things. Right, right, yeah. That was me. I feel like there are a couple of moments. There's the moment when he's showing her Howard Stark's apartment that, of course, she can't take because if anybody makes the connection between her and Howard Stark, mm-hmm. it'll look really bad. Um, and she throws herself down on the bed and snuggles into the stable blanket, and it looks somewhat, 
you know, sensual. Then we have the moment where they're lowering themselves down into the hole in the in the floor where the weapons were stolen, you know, and they're hooked to this thing. They're facing each other. They're, you know, I mean, there's this kind of like weird sense. And to me, what it feels like is it feels like the producers sort of throwing the balloon out there, throwing a test balloon sure. out, kind of making space for that possibility. But at the same time, like, I love that he's devoted to his wife. I love that we're seeing this close, like, that there there can be close male-female relationships modeled that have nothing to do with that element, you know? And yeah. yet that moment where he's got his hand on her knee and she looks at him and he realizes he's got his hand on her knee and moves it, that feels to me, like we're stepping over that test balloon line. And so for me, I was like, oh, come on, guys. Like I'm reading into this thing, this this sense of them kind of throwing that into the space so that they've got room for it later should they want it. But it's one of those things, and I ship everything. I will tell you right now, I <laughs> ship everything. I am always about the romantic relationship. But Jarvis and Peggy, I desperately, desperately want this to be that relationship that yeah, truly I don't platonic want like I yeah. shipped I shipped Mulder and Scully I shipped them hard and I was right Chris Carter was wrong that's a whole other podcast I'll talk about it someday but uh, like, the title of it will be Chris Carter is wrong Chris Carter's totally wrong Chris Carter was completely messed up on that but anyway that's a whole other discussion ruin the show um, but I think that like this relationship is exactly that thing and I want to see that explored you know and I mean I have male friends you know that I've been friends with forever that are very important to me who I love dearly and it is just a platonic relationship and that's the way that it is you know and I want to see us develop those in art media without everything always having to be about sex so um so I kind of like it it made me a little bit tense I'm not gonna say it didn't make me tense <laughs> you know I saw that moment and I was like knock it off and you know and I mean I've seen the whole thing so I know what happens you know but even in these first four episodes I was like knock it off guys let's just let's not do that you know anytime it gets a little weird or awkward mm -hmm. in a in a way that might be romantic mm -hmm. you should just remember that they are both very English they are very English <laughs> this is the way that I oh it got awkward because they are definitely overstepping what would be normal bounds right. for the time right. and they're both quite english about right it. had it been howard yeah. he would have moved his hand from her knee and slapped her ass right <laughs> and then had his jaw broken exactly. and who doesn't want to see that episode of this show exactly i feel like with that episode the, that episode of this show happened before we met them on the first avenger yes like exactly <laughs> howard got slapped real early in that relationship <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> All right. So one of the things, too, that I wanted to talk about with Jarvis, though, and to see how you felt about this, is that in these first four episodes, we get a number of these, like, uh, just really annoying misleads to me where he might be dangerous. Like, when he first meets her in the alley, instead of saying, hi, I'm Jarvis, I'm Howard Stark's butler, and I would like to talk to you for a moment. Will you come in the car? He is walking at her in this menacing way in a dark alley. You're coming with me. Like, what the hell is that about? I also hate these misdirections that he might yeah. be a bad guy, mm -hmm. with the exception of that first one. <laughs> because I feel mm -hmm. like that's Jarvis in his own head going, and this is how espionage stories start. This is how espionage works. I'm going to go up to this woman who could kill me with her pinky and say, in a dark alley. I mean, no. And Jarvis 
like the Jarvis that we meet immediately after that, that is so inconsistent with his character. The only way I think that you can get away with that is if you see it so tightly from Peggy's perspective that she, yeah. what he actually yeah. said is something different, but she being a woman in a dark alley, you know, her, her sensitivity to danger and also yes. being who she is, is, is somewhat heightened in that circumstance. She's feeling a little vulnerable um, and that we're deep in her POV, but reality is they're just messing with us. And I hate that we have this stuff where she, where he's talking to Stark later and he's saying, no, Peggy doesn't suspect a thing, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Um, when she's asking him about the Blitzkrieg button, he's pulling on his ear, you know, which, I, which is honestly like, that's the least bothersome one of it because he is lying to her and he is and he's forced torn. to do that. Yeah. And he's torn and he's feeling that. So that's okay. You know? Um, but all of this builds up. Like I hate the misleads where we're not supposed to trust Jarvis. That drives me crazy. I hate Mr. X like that. That makes me nuts. If you're not going to commit to something, don't tease me, you know? But then we get all of this built up to this wonderful moment in the Blitzkrieg button, you know, after she's discovered that they've lied to her. You know, and that Jarvis, the man that she has been depending on this whole time, has lied to her. And it's a beautiful moment where she walks up to him and she says, Did you know? I truly regret the way this matter was handled. I'll take that as a yes. Don't ever play poker. You rub your ear when you lie. Mr. Stark respects you, Miss Carter. As do I. Is there anyone else alive who holds you in such high esteem? I can trust the actions of men who don't respect me more than those who do. At least when they ask for something, they mean it. And this goes back right to what you were saying, is that the, the men who don't respect her, the men who are her enemies, she can trust them. It's the ones who are supposed to be her friends, you know, that are, that are lying to her and that are not straight up with her, you know. It just comes off this moment that we had a little bit earlier from Thompson, Right, which shows that different. I think the Blitzkrieg button, honestly, is one of my favorites. The episode number four and the first. Yeah, season, I agree. It's very one good. of my favorite episodes of the whole show. It is so good. But we just came up. We have this heartbreak with her dealing with the betrayal from Jarvis, and of course Jarvis having British reserve through the whole thing, but feeling this very deeply. We can see that he is feeling his betrayal very deeply as well. And then we have this moment just prior to that with Thompson, where he's kind of moving into. You know, he's been this misogynist jerk all along but he's moving into this sort of truth teller role sort of like the the role that um for people familiar with buffy the vampire slayer that uh, spike had you know that cordelia had in the early seasons that spike had later on um where this is the person who tells you the uncomfortable truths who even though it's not okay and it's not right will say what the absolute truth is and we have this moment where thompson says you're trying to hide something peggy and the only one you're fooling is you What's that, Agent Thompson? The natural order of the universe. You're a woman. No man will ever consider you an equal. It's sad, but it doesn't make it any less true. I can always come to you for the truth. And we have that moment where he says, it's sad. You don't deserve this. You deserve better. But this is what you're going to get. Accept it. And the thing about truth tellers is that you can at least respect them for it. Like they don't pretend the world is something other than it is. And even if they think that what the world is is wrong, they accept truth over that sense of, of values, you know, and I can at least respect that. Like, is it this moment that I looked at Thompson and I thought, all right, you know, I can work with this. What did you think about that? 
I really like how this is another unexpected inversion mm-hmm. or subversion. Yeah. Because you're right. Thompson is starting to step into that truth above all else, you know, that kind of truth teller space, yeah. except he's wrong. Mm-hmm. There was at least one man who did consider him his equal. Mm-hmm. Sure, it was Captain America. Right. I mean, look, Steve is exceptional. We know this, right? But, uh-huh. but I think I think that the honest truth is, in this episode, there are at least another couple of of examples. I don't feel like Howard and Jarvis are treating her like less than equal. Mm-hmm. If you had two men trying to protect a male friend from a very difficult truth that would hurt him emotionally, mm-hmm. we wouldn't read it that way. Now, right. I recognize slotting a woman into that that third slot, Mm -hmm. the one who's being protected, changes the whole thing, right? Yeah. But not necessarily from Howard and Jarvis's perspective. They didn't take that into account, you know? And at any rate, I really like the idea that Thompson is our truth teller in this series, in this episode, Mm -hmm. but that we, the viewers, also know at the end of the day, he's not right. He's not right. Exactly. Like, he's telling the truth as he sees it, you know? He yeah. also gets to do the thing that we want the truth teller to do in the story while we are comforted as viewers by the fact that he's not right. He's not right. Exactly. Well, the, the, the world he's talking about is a world that is passing away. The world that he's talking about, he was right, you know, a year ago, five years ago, like, but things are changing. And the fact that, that Peggy is even in that space, the fact that she's even in that office shows that things are changing. Ex- yes. Yes. The writing is on the wall, Thompson. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the, the, the era of the, we are still waiting for the full end of it in the year of our Lord 2018, but the, mm-hmm. the end of the mediocre white male's reign yeah. <laughs> we, is in a still, slow shambling destruction. It's a slow, know. it's a slow decline, but it is happening. So. Well, you know, look, it'd been around for 5,000 years. Give us yeah. a, give us a minute. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's going to take a minute to, to, to tear that apart. Um, okay. So now, you know, you talk about Jarvis and Howard as trying to like protect Peggy. I felt like more, I felt angrier about that. I felt like they weren't protecting her so much as if she knew what she was doing, if she knew what she was retrieving, she wouldn't have done it or she would have done it, but she wouldn't have given it back to them. That it felt more like manipulation to me. I mean, maybe from Jarvis's perspective, it might've been about protection, but it felt like definitely from Howard more manipulative than that. I am notorious for pulling the move I'm about to move, but uh, (laughs) why can't it be both? Uh Uh-huh. I mean, Howard is a self-serving, awful kind of human being a lot of the time. Not all the time. And we'll actually see him get better as yeah. a human as mm-hmm. the this series progresses. But mm-hmm. he's not a great person at his core all the time. But he does genuinely care about Peggy and cared about Steve. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'll say... You're not wrong. I like it better if it's both. You yeah. know, mm-hmm. I get to feel good about. And actually, this is a this is an interesting kind of cracked mirror with Sousa. I mm-hmm. get to feel good for doing the right thing by protecting my friend. Mm-hmm. But I did it for me. Right. You know, it's the difference between he did do a good thing, but he did it also for himself as opposed to Sousa at the beginning doing a good thing and recognizing it doesn't actually help. And yeah, and it's also not about him, you know, yeah. too. like with with Howard Stark, everything is about him, which moves us nicely into a discussion of Howard, 
who is not actually there that much. I mean, he is really a motivating catalyst in the narrative. You know, he gives Peggy this opportunity to do the work that she wants to do, to do the mm-hmm. meaningful work, you know? Um, so we don't really get that much of him, but he's, we get some wonderful stuff with him in episode four in the Blitzkrieg button. Um, my favorite, I think, is probably that moment in the beginning where she throws him in the dumbwaiter. <laughs> <laughs> So episode four, especially within the confines of the Griffith, it suddenly becomes a 60s bedroom comedy. <laughs> this game of whack-a-mole of which, yes. which door is Howard going to come out of next, Without you know? ever undermining Peggy's place. Because yes. Peggy mm-hmm. would be very uncomfortable in a 60s bedroom comedy. Right. <laughs> so we make the use of this backdrop so we can have that fun without messing up our main character. I like it lots. No, it's absolutely wonderful. I mean, I love it when she shoves him in that in that dumbwaiter and he's so scared. <laughs> you know, he's like, well, what if I can't breathe? <laughs> what? I hate small spaces. What if the chain snaps and I fall to my death? Don't worry, I'll never reveal that Howard Stark's dead body is lying rotting in the bottom of a dumbwaiter shaft. What if I suffocate? If Miriam finds us, we'd be much more comfortable in an electric chair. Just for the record, so we move into much more serious territory with Howard, um, which I really kind of like and is um, is kind of interesting. Like, I love this moment when she returns back, you know, and she knows something's wrong. She knows something's up. She knows it's Steve Rogers' blood. I mean, deep down inside, she knows, but she makes him tell her, you know, and mm-hmm. she says, What's in the vial? What vial? What is in the vial? You opened it. You know how dangerous that could be? What's in the vial, Howard? Okay, you're angry. I'm not angry. I'm just curious. What's in the vial? You know. We both know. I don't. Tell me. Steve Rogers' blood. I love this moment. She knows what's in that vial, but she wants him to tell her. She needs him to say it out loud, what's in that vial, what he made her go after. And you can see his shame in the way that he's responding to her. Like, you know how dangerous that is, but he's still feeling, you know, that. And when she punches him dead in the face, I love that. I love that. (laughs) His shame in this Mm -hmm. moment is one of the reasons that I can read the deception Mm -hmm. as being both things. Mm-hmm. He did know what he was doing. Like yeah. this wasn't just blind privilege, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't just self-serving. He also knew the potential damage he was doing to this relationship. Yeah, and he he made the calculated decision that it was still the thing to do. We may disagree, mm-hmm. you know, but I can understand the humanity of that. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. um, it it lets Howard be. The kind of self-serving jerk. Mm-hmm. Oh, it kind of lets him be the self-serving jerk with a heart of gold in a way that is difficult as the yeah. MCU progresses for me to allow Tony to be. Yeah. No, I can definitely I have a hard that. time letting Tony into that space. Yeah. The more movies we get. <laughs> yeah. But Howard, I think, had that, at least at the potential at that time. I think what, yes. he grows, he, what he grows into later is obviously, you know, a much darker space. But at this point, like, he he could still be something better, but he is essentially 
you know, he is essentially Howard Stark and he just is mm-hmm. what he is, you know. Um, one of the things that I found really interesting as I started like kind of tooling around on the internet, you know, looking at things is I have heard once or twice this argument that Howard Stark may be actually Jewish. And the a lot of the, you know, evidence, the textual support that people pull in actually comes from this episode, the Blitzkrieg button. Um, there's a point where he's talking to Peggy. I trusted you, Howard! I know, and I was wrong, but you have to understand, a kid like me doesn't get to where I'm at. But once for treason. I grew up on the Lower East Side. My father sold fruit. My mother sewed shirtwaists for a factory. Let me tell you, you don't get to climb the American ladder without picking up some bad habits on the way. There's a ceiling for certain types of people based on how much money your parents have, your social class, your religion, your sex. And the only way to break through that ceiling sometimes is to lie. So that's my natural instinct, to lie. I shouldn't have lied to you. And so we have this, you know, people look at, you know, grew up on the Lower East Side during the time when Howard was growing up. That was a heavily Jewish kind of area of the city. Um, His father sold fruit. His mother sewed shirtwaists. I mean, that's something that was the kind of like immigrant experience, you know, that people Mm -hmm. would have. Um, And then when he says, when he includes religion in this list of things that keep you held down, you know, um, that's something that people kind of take a nod at. Um, And there's, there's some other stuff out there there's some other like you know kind of like mild things that might indicate that that Howard is Jewish which would make Tony Stark you know at least maybe ethnically Jewish if not religiously Jewish which I think would be really neat and I would actually kind of love that um but what bugs me about this is that if Howard Stark is Jewish and we are being this quiet about it and we're not we're like nodding toward it a little bit but not actually stating it in the text that we have to pull so deeply from these little hints and these little clues that maybe he might be Jewish, that I find bothersome, especially given the context of Captain America, where we needed some acknowledgement of the the element of what it means to be Jewish during that time, during any time, you know, like what you have to put up with, with this. And, 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 what, I mean, we, there's so much loud anti-Semitism, but it's almost like Peggy being able to trust the people who are against her more than the people who are with her. Why do we have to be so quiet? If Howard Stark is Jewish, why can't we just say so? Why can't we just let that be part of the text? Why can't we add this to his character? Why do we have to be quiet about it? Why do we have to have this silent anti-Semitism? You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. Uh, this is not a theory that I had really run into, but mm-hmm. I like it. It yeah. makes a lot of sense. But again, kind of like we talked about the uh, if you're going to fridge pepper, really do it, like have the courage of your conviction, even if it's terrible Mm -hmm. to do it and back out is even worse. And it feels like that, too, where it's like we're going to throw breadcrumbs at the Jewish experience, but not actually recognize it is almost worse than if you had given nothing at all. I think it is. worse. I mean, now I'm not in that group. I am prepared to hear from. Jewish people that it's like that they would prefer breadcrumbs to nothing. I don't know. I honestly don't know. But just trying to understand it, it seems worse, like to play footsie with a thing rather than just do it, especially when there's a really interesting story choice in that moment when if he needs to regain the trust of Peggy, Mm -hmm. tell her the thing that you constantly have to lie about. Right. That has turned you into a pathological liar. Like do the entire same speech. And then say, do you know how much it kills me that I can't attend synagogue? Do you know how much it kills me that I have to sit there and eat ham on Sunday with these businessmen to make nice? Whatever. I mean, 
even give him a complicated relationship with yeah. that history. Like, you know, because there are a lot of people, you know, who are who come from a Jewish background, who come from a Jewish history, who, you know, in the same way that I come from a Christian background, I'm not really into Christianity. <laughs> like, you know, it's just not it's not my thing, doesn't turn my clock, you know? That, you know, having a complicated relationship with where you come from and with your your history, I think could be really interesting. Um, but also the idea that like is he stepping away from Judaism because he's ashamed of it because he's trying to hide it because he's trying not to to have to deal with that anti-Semitism, you know, which Mm -hmm. you can't blame him for, you know, or is it more complicated or whatever? But I think that like, just, I just, I desperately want some acknowledgement of Judaism and anti-Semitism. And, you know, in these stories, because I feel like we're so quiet about anti-Semitism and it is so devastating when you don't shine light on these things, when you let them sit in the dark like that, that's where they get worse. That's where they grow worse, you know? So I actually would really love to hear from any of the a-holes out there who have a perspective on this, who have some light to shine on it for us. My instinct is if you're going to make him Jewish, do it. I'm more annoyed that we have to search and hunt and peck through everything. You know, that people were like, oh, and he helped Jarvis get his Jewish wife out of something Poland, maybe, you know, and that that was something that, that, first of all, a decent human being would do, regardless of whether they themselves were Jewish or not. But it would be really interesting if there was that kind of kinship there. Um, you know, the fact that Jarvis's wife is Jewish, I loved I was like, thank mm-hmm. you. Yeah. You know, give us something real. Give us something that we can, you know. And when Peggy says your wife was Jewish and he says still is, I'm glad to report or, you know, whatever he says there. Yeah. Like, I, I like that, you know, and I like that his wife is Jewish. I like that we have this, you know, at least some acknowledgement of what was going on at the time. You know, it's it's such a huge part of what was happening. We don't talk about it. And that feels really dark. The silence feels almost darker to me than than acknowledging the anti-Semitism. So, yeah. um, so for me, I found that to be, I, I really love the idea of Howard Stark being Jewish. If it's true, I hate the way that they didn't commit to it, you know? Yeah. Again, I, I want to hear from people for whom this is their experience, but it really does feel in the context of these characters and mm-hmm. the men who created these characters and the situation yeah. in which they were created and the situation in which we are still setting them. Yeah. You know, like a historically, man, just own it. And and when you have the added bonus of really throwing several more layers of character development and conflict or, mm-hmm. or at least um, complication between a couple of your characters with that fact, it's like, why would you not? Right. And, and the only answer can be, quiet, insidious anti-Semitism. Yeah. Oh, well, I don't want to say it's the only answer, but it's mixed in there. It's definitely part of the answer. I'm feeling you know? it. Yeah, I'm yeah. feeling it. And and so maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I would really love to hear um, opinions from people who have maybe a, a much deeper understanding of these issues than I do. Um, but from my perspective, I look at that and I'm like, uh-uh, nope, <laughs> do it. Or don't do it, you know, but yeah. definitely yes. do it because that would be awesome. And that would make <laughs> Iron Man Jewish. And I kind of love that. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. I, there's mm, there's a lot of yeah. I, man. There's so many layers then because it's like, oh, do you want to talk about why Howard would never shut up about Captain America? Mm-hmm. 
I mean, there's another reason more than just hero worship. Yeah. Yeah. You know, exactly. he was a legitimately good person who protected our people, son, mm-hmm. except I can't say that out loud because I've been running from it my whole life. Right. It's man. There's so much interesting stuff there. There's so much stuff you could do there that would be so great. But uh, but unfortunately, we don't really do it. We don't commit to it. But anyway, moving forward, um, let's talk a little bit about Sousa. Because I absolutely love Sousa. I love Enver Jokai. I love everything about this. Um, and one of my favorite things, like I loved him all along. I love that first moment in the beginning with Peggy where he stands up for her and then listens to her um, and, and appreciates and respects her position on that. Um, but then we get this moment in episode number four, the Blitzkrieg button, where he takes down these guys on the war. Police. Frank, I just want to know what you saw. Were you the one who called in the tip? I'm going to tip to the cops. Just said I ain't got no business with Johnny Law. He must be so good. And then he just takes that guy out. Yeah. <laughs> with the cane. And I love that moment so much because I got to tell you, disabled is a really shitty term. The requirement that every character be physically unmarred or they are completely about their disability. It's one thing or the other. And that is completely dehumanizing. It doesn't allow anybody with any sort of disability to be something else other than deaf or, you know, he's got an amputated leg or blind or whatever it is that they also have that is part of them. I love the fact that he is using what he's got. He's got this cane, you know, because he lost his leg. So he uses that and that is now a weapon that is now part of his superhero sort of identity, even though he's not a superhero, it does make him in a sense super, it gives him something extra, you know, so I like that he's a regular guy, I like that he's a beta hero, I like that he can knock down a guy, you know, and use the cane and make that part of what makes him powerful. Um, I love everything about Sousa. I'm a huge Sousa fan. (laughs) What do you think of this guy? I, I like him a lot. I like him for who he is as a human being. And I do love his visibility. Um, yeah. This past year, I listened to a podcast. They had as a guest, Alice Wong, who is a disability activist. Mm-hmm. Um, I started following her on Twitter. Uh, she's one of the co-founders, I think, of Disvisibility. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all about just amplifying and sharing disability media and culture it's been eye-opening to me and it's started to be the research for myself as a writer to try and include disabled people but in a way that community would appreciate you know right that it doesn't define everything about them right yeah yeah because one of the very eye-opening things i'm pretty sure that that i heard this if i didn't hear this from ms wong specifically Mm -hmm. it was you know being following her on Twitter and things that I heard is it's mm-hmm. like, nobody talks about your eyeglasses like you're disabled. Right. But they are literally the same as Sousa's yeah. crutch or mm-hmm. a wheelchair or, you know, whatever the tool is that you use to, uh, to get through the world. Yeah. Don't treat it like a lesser thing. It's just a tool. Think yeah. about your eyeglasses, you know, mm-hmm. and seeing Sousa, not just, I hate to say overcome his disability, but just like figure out how to be in the world with it. Both culturally, right. like dealing with other people, but also turning his tool into all kinds of tools. I have a big hunk of metal. Why would I not Why hit somebody not dangerous with it? that? You know, and I hate <laughs> I hate the term like differently abled because it feels so I don't know, so condescending, you know? But it's it's not even like it's it's that you are able 
in a million different ways. There's yeah. one thing. Yeah, right. Like I have bad eyes. I've been wearing glasses since I was 11 years old, but no, never have I thought about that as a disability. Never have I thought about my glasses as being a problem, you know, except when I want contact lenses. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, like I've got <laughs> when options. When I can't find them, that's right. when it's a problem. Right. You yeah. know, but I mean like this, this idea that like, yes, he's, he's lost his leg. So he has to have this cane and all right. But instead of making that something that holds him back, he uses that as a tool. And I think that that is absolutely what he would do. And he's still strong and he's still, and he's not because of this disability suddenly taken out of the romantic running, you know, as a potential partner. Absolutely. Like it doesn't disable him you know, as a character. And I really like that. And I think that, you know, we have, we've been doing a lot of this kind of visibility, this, this idea of diversity and normalization in so many different areas. But I mean, two of the areas that really do get ignored a lot are, you know, ability related um, situations and, um, and Judaism and anti-Semitism. And those are the things where we're not, where people are still invisible. People are still treated as invisible because of those things, you know, or we're pretending that anti-Semitism doesn't exist. Uh, with, you know, people, People with different kinds of disabilities, we are, you know, pretending that that's all that they are, that it defines everything that they are, you know, um, and we're seeing that a little bit more. We're seeing a little more visibility coming out, you know, because of people like Ms. Wong and, and other people who are like advocating for that. And the thing is, you know, I talk about this a lot and I talk about these things, you know, partially because I think it's a decent human being thing to do, you know, and, and I kind of hate the word ally because it sounds so self-serving, you know, and mm-hmm. whatever. Um, but the thing is like, part of it is also that like, I want better stories. <laughs> I want better stories yes. with a variety of people with different types of people. Like for me, yes, part of it is I'd like to be a decent human being. Thank you. You know, I mean, I would like to believe that I'm, I'm a decent human and that I would open up space where I can for people who are not represented. I think that that's very important. But like a lot of the reason why I'm, I'm so passionate about all this stuff is that I want stories with people like Sousa because it's more yes. interesting for me. It is selfishly motivated in the same way that like dismantling white supremacy is good for white people and dissembling disamb- like the patriarchy is good for men. Like it is good for everybody to have representation for everybody. It is what we should all be working for because it is selfishly motivated. It makes the world a better place when we see everybody in it and everybody in it has equal opportunity to tell their stories. Like, So for me, like a lot of it, the reason why I talk about it so much and why it's so important to me is because I think it's important socially and all that kind of stuff, but also just as a writer and as a person who loves stories, I want more stories from different people. I am tired of the stories that we're getting. I want more variety. I want more people telling their stories. So that's very selfishly motivated. Um, But I've seen Sousa like this. It gives me such joy in my heart seeing this character. I love the way that he's written. I love the way that he's handled. And, uh, and I just got to say, it makes me incredibly happy. I, I agree 100%. I'm doing all these things because they're the right thing to do. Right. But if I also get additional enjoyment out of it, I, I am working on a serialized fiction project with a co-writer who is also a straight white male. Mm-hmm. Hi, Daniel. <laughs> and But the reason we, in a very similar time frame, like our fiction is set in a pre-war, uh-huh. pre-World War II, um, but all it all stars women or homosexuals or African-Americans because we realized mm-hmm. that we were tired of reading the stories thing. Yeah. all about straight white guys. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, your your activism starts at home kind mm-hmm. of thing. So, I mean, we're doing lots of things, Daniel. This is Daniel Swenson, who, by the way, wrote a fantasy novel I did not hate. I, in fact, loved it. So go read it right now. <laughs> All right. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Right. It's kind of a big deal because I hate most fantasy novels. We'll just okay. come back to that <laughs> when I get added on Twitter constantly. But, <laughs> I, I mean, that was a realization he and I had that it was Mm -hmm. like every single story idea we have gets more interesting when it's about people that aren't like us. And so we're doing things with beta readers and with visual artists and things to make sure that we don't do it in a big, stupid, privileged way. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's also like if we don't make any effort, if we just stay in our safety zone writing about people that look like us, we really felt like we were part of the problem instead of the solution. Mm -hmm. And yeah, anyway. Plus you're bored. Right. Also, I'm bored. I don't want to write about me all the time. Exactly. All right. So let's pull this back to Peggy Carter because we are running really long, but I'm loving this discussion. But I do want to take a few moments before we close up to talk about the bad guys um, in this. You talked a little bit about Leviathan and gave us some Mm -hmm. like perspective on that because we're we're not really getting a sense of who the big bad is at this point. I mean, we're hopping from bad guy to bad guy to bad guy, and they're all getting taken out. Usually most of them by a woman, not always by Peggy, as we're going to see. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> we have Leet Brannis, who is played by James Frain, who I will never see as anyone but Forney from Where the Heart Is. I love that movie. Um, he buys it in the second episode, you know, gives Peggy the clue to the heartbreaker to find the, the ship with the stolen weapons. Um, we have that guy who goes around killing everybody, you know, stabbing him through the hand first because apparently he's got a thing. He's the stabby hand killer. Um, and then uh, <laughs> he he bites it on top of the milk truck, you know, and they end up finding him and making those connections. So that's what the SSR is chasing. Um, we have this looming Leviathan, which is like this Russian version of Hydra, I guess, that seems to be behind everything. We don't really know anything about that yet. Um, and then we get this guy, Mink, right? We get this like very blonde guy with the happy trigger finger with the automated weapon that just kills the guys who didn't get the extra 100,000 from Howard Stark because of Peggy. And he seems like he's going to be really dangerous. He's really creepy. He's trying to deliver these flowers to Peggy and he can't get past this <laughs> murderous guy, cannot get past Miriam Fry, which I love. And then we have this beautiful moment. He's there. He's at Peggy's door. He seems so dangerous. Dottie comes out and we're like, oh, no, Dottie, she's in danger. And we have this wonderful, wonderful moment. Hey, mister, are you lost? Young woman, return to your room. Are are you looking for Peggy? Return to your room, please. Is that pistol an automatic? I want that. (laughs) She lunges at him with her neckcracker thighs, takes his head off, and gets the gun. I love it. That moment was in running for my favorite part of the whole thing. It was so fantastic. Yes. We'll get to the favorite things, but Mm -hmm. the fact that that was both of our second pick and so close. (laughs) It was incredible. It was just incredible. It was so good. And you watch, again, that layers of acting. You Mm -hmm. watch Dottie go from, hey, mister, you lost? Like she just got off the farm truck Mm -hmm. to doing a uh, hint, hint. Black Widow-esque kind of move to to kill the guy. Yeah, it's oof. It's so good. More Dottie, please. And good news, (laughs) your wish comes true. Um, We will have more Dottie. No, Dottie's fantastic. And from that moment, I'm like, I want want to see this story. Like, I want to know where this is going. Now, I agree with you that the bad guys are kind of all over the place. Uh And I also 
know that that bothers you. (laughs) (laughs) And I understand why. Like, I'm not even saying that it shouldn't, you know, uh, annoy your story sense. It doesn't bother me that much because I know that there's a big bad behind it all. But I don't feel like I feel like we spend so much time being like, ooh, this guy's really creepy and dangerous. Look, he's stabbing people through the hand. Look, he shot a housewife in the head, you know, Um, and he shot Colleen through the head in the beginning, you know, like. The, this guy's really super dangerous and now he's dead and that's fine. But now, no, we got this guy and this guy's super dangerous. He has to talk through a thing that he puts on his neck. It's so creepy. Oh, but he's dead too. So then we'll go to this other guy. Look, he's really blonde and Aryan looking and really creepy and he's trying to get in and oh, well, thought he just killed him with her thighs. Like all of these guys <laughs> seem so bad and then they get taken out like immediately and I think it undercuts this sense of danger. But we have the big bad in the background, Leviathan. If we didn't have Leviathan, I would be completely disappointed by the whole thing. I agree. No, I agree. Yeah. The fact that we've got that in the background, I think helps. Leviathan and then a little thematic thing that I want to point out to you, Mm -hmm. I think saves it all for me Mm -hmm. because again, with that spy fi and and somewhat just espionage in general, the idea that any one particular operative of that organization is very dangerous, but Mm -hmm. there's still this whole organization behind them. Mm -hmm. You know, that's part of the deal, right? Um, Also, we have a lot going on with Peggy and Jarvis and Howard and all these jerks yeah. around her mm-hmm. that the idea that we would also have to develop villains is like, oh, my God, when? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Especially when we're going to kill them, which mm-hmm. I think is kind of cool. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. the thing that we do with every single one of these men is we establish that they are incredibly dangerous. Yes. Mm-hmm. They leave trails of bodies behind them. One of them is making weapons deals Mm -hmm. for super bombs, you know, um, mink is the best tease of this. And the thing that made me realize what they were doing, Mm -hmm. uh, where it looks like he's like an inventor slash crime Lord slash just very bad man. But then they all get taken out relatively easily. I mean, not easily because there's Mm -hmm. lots of stuff. But relatively easy by a woman. Mm Yeah. I think this is just undergirding the themes while also getting away with genre things. Right. (laughs) And Mink brought this home to me because Mm -hmm. Mink looks like a guy who's going to be a problem. They gave him a a distinct visual look. They Mm -hmm. gave him uh, a very menacing air. Mm -hmm. You know, he's clearly very resourceful because he he starts clever. Mm -hmm. That doesn't work. So he goes, I'll just sneak through the air vents. Right. Right. But then Dottie just murders him. Yes. Straight up. And that's when I went, oh, that's what we're doing. Because now, whether we meant to or not, we were mentally equating Mink with some of these Leviathan guys. Mm -hmm. And then Dottie in two seconds moves what we thought was a bishop off the board. Right. (laughs) And it was like, never mind. Dottie's the bishop. This is great. Yeah. And Dottie's also very dangerous. Like you can tell from that moment. I want that. And it's like, oh, okay. I like it. Yeah. So altogether, I feel like it's a very satisfying package in a way that it yeah. wouldn't be if we weren't operating in a very specific genre and undergirding themes that I really like. Yeah. You know? <laughs> no, I mean, it's it's really interesting. So I think it works. Like, I, I feel like we're setting up these people to be super dangerous and then taking them out. And it feels to me like it undercuts their danger a little bit. Um, yeah, I, can I, do like, I can see I that. I do like where it's going. And we have Leviathan. We know that Leviathan is going to be a source of endless bad guys, you know, <laughs> crawling out of the box. Um But I think that it's really, I think it's really good. Now, one of the other things that I was so proud of myself 
throughout this whole thing as I'm watching. I'm like, ooh, I caught something. I caught an Easter egg, you know? And I get so what proud of myself. What have I done to you, Lonnie? Right, I I've, know. I've done this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is, all the Easter eggs that I catch, I catch because we've had conversations and you have told me about them. So, like, <laughs> I want to, at the end of every episode, to see if I can find something that you didn't see. And I know I didn't in this one because I shared, I think, all of them with you. <laughs> I was like, did you see that? Did you see that? You're like, yeah. Um, but one of them was... And when she was doing the Vita yeah. radiation detector, it said property of A. Erskine, Abraham Erskine, who we know, of course, was the one who gave Captain America his powers, was the good man um, who, who got killed because he was a mentor. And that's what happens to mentors um, in, uh, in Captain America, the first <laughs> They served their yeah. purpose. <laughs> exactly. When somebody gets the job description of a mentor, they should be like, oh, this means I got to die. Um, so we also had Anton Vanko you know, show up. Yeah. And I caught that, which I was very proud of myself. And you mentioned that to me and everything. Now, let me say about the Vita rays right quick. Yes. That's pretty great. Okay. Uh -huh. Because they could have done anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, they could have just said radiation, right. right? They didn't. But but because we have this larger world, it was like, yeah, let's just use Vita rays. Mm -hmm. And and it also gave us a cool character moment where Anton's like, yes, it's Vita rays. We use them in the, I know what they do. <laughs> You know, like perhaps you have yeah. not read my file, you know. Um, so it, the tie-in of Erskine is great, mm -hmm. but even sort of more so than that was realizing they could have said nothing. And yeah. instead they said a lot yeah. with that choice. Yeah. So it's pretty good. No, it was very I'm sorry. Very I'm fun. sorry. I wanted to get that in before. Now, challenge me. Okay, I've got one more that I caught. Hit me. I got one more, but it's the one that everybody catches and everybody always sees. But at the end, when Howard and Jarvis are sitting at the shoeshine stand, of course, we have <laughs> Stanley borrowing the sports <laughs> section from Stark. And having Stanley do his little cameo is a classic thing. Everybody knows. Everybody finds him. You know, he's the old guy who shows up everywhere. Um, yeah. So, I mean, so he was there and I saw that. I didn't catch any other Easter eggs. Did you catch anything else? Okay. I kind of alluded to one. Okay. Just a moment ago. And I'm mm -hmm. curious if you caught, because the first time I saw the show and I saw Dottie uh -huh. kill Mink, yes. I went, that's a Black Widow. There you go. Yeah. Like, like because because I knew a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. Leviathan's Eastern Bloc. I knew and, and it's set in the 40s, which mm -hmm. means we're moving into our like late 40s, post-war. Right. So we're moving mm -hmm. into that kind of golden age of espionage, Cold War, us versus them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Soviet stuff. And we had seen Peggy fight people in very competent ways, but they don't look like the way. Yeah. No, Black that's Widow a very fights. that's a very specific fighting does. style. Yes. Yeah. And so right away, I was like, that's a Black Widow. Uh -huh. Like right away. I didn't know where they were going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I wondered if you did anything like that your first time through. No. My first time through, I didn't. I saw that moment with Dottie and I was like, ooh. And then um, I didn't make that connection until much, much later um, because they, they make it fairly textually for us. <laughs> yeah. But I felt I felt very clever, yeah. uh, honestly. No, that's a good um, catch. At, at mm -hmm. the time, because I was like, oh, that's just it's just so different, even than the um, the Leviathan guys yeah. that we've seen be also very competent in a fight. I was like, oh, that's very visually distinctive. Mm -hmm. No, it is. It is that stance that she had as soon as she was done. 
you know, killing yeah. with their thighs. Yeah, that's a very Black Widow thing. And that, I think that is an absolutely no accident. But no, I mean, it's funny because I look at all these Easter eggs and the only reason I catch them is because I've talked to you because you've like made me aware of this stuff. So being able to get an Easter egg that you don't see like throughout the entire run of Listen Up A-Holes, it might happen maybe once, maybe if you're really tired on one of these watches. Um, but I keep... <laughs> I keep waiting for the moment where I'm going to catch something that you didn't see, and that will be so fun. <laughs> I accept this challenge, <laughs> and I kind of have to because, honestly, I'm going to notice them one way or the other. I mean, you know, yeah. like... You're going to catch everything. I know you're going to catch everything, but I'm like, I'm so determined to, like, give me an impossible task, and I'm on it. I'm like, yes, that I want to try. <laughs> Let's do this. Let's uh-huh. do this. We will turn the Easter egg competition into an ongoing thing mm-hmm. for Listen Up A-Holes, but we will have two levels of Lonnie winning. Okay, all right. The first level is we will make our lists of Easter eggs. Yes. By the way, you must never look at the script notes while you're making yours because yes. most of mine are going to turn into, into comic the book history. Into the script notes, right. <laughs> we will make our lists, and if you ever get all of the ones yes. that I got. Okay. Then that's a win. All right. I like it. I like it. If you manage to find one I did not win, grand prize. (laughs) And I don't know what it will be, but I will do something debasing and embarrassing in a public forum. No, I would never want that for a grand prize. What I want is like a little certificate. You can design a little certificate for me that I get to put on my wall. How's that? Well, okay, when I say embarrassing and debasing, I will basically just like do my best to hold you up as like, I have been beaten. My decades of wasted time reading comic books. Right. Nevertheless, this woman, this brilliant <laughs> goddess, has out Easter egged me. All right. I think this sounds like fun. Thing. And everybody at home can play along, which will be lots of fun. All right. So moving from that into our favorite parts, I got to say my favorite moment. Oh, God. In this whole first four episodes is when Peggy tears Stark down after she's uncovered this betrayal and Stark has this moment and you can see he's so devastated he says what the hell do you think of me I think you're a man out for his own gain no matter who you're charging you are constantly finding holes to slither your way into in the hope of finding loose change only to cry when you're bitten by another snake you're a man who says I love you whilst looking over a woman's shoulder into the mirror Steve Rogers dedicated his mind, his body, his life to the SSR and to this country, not to your bank account. I made the same pledge, but I'm not as good as Steve was. I forgot my pledge running around for you like a corporate spy. So thank you, Howard, for reminding me who Steve was and what I aspire to be. For all I know, you did steal your inventions. Peggy. I need some fresh air to get away from your stink. That is an amazing monologue. I love that speech. It's so heartbreaking. You know that it's true and at the same time feel so much for Howard seeing this reality about himself, having that reflected back at him from somebody, one of the few people he has a personal relationship with who actually likes him. And you set this up against the speech that Thompson gave her, that she'll never get the chance to do what she wants to do because she's a woman, which makes Howard Stark her only path to meaningful work at this time, you know, but Mm -hmm. when she realizes what Howard is, she knows that she doesn't have a choice. You know, she's not just ending her friendship with Howard. She's cutting off her connection to Jarvis and her path to meaningful work. 
But this matters to her. Her integrity matters to her. Steve's memory matters more to her. And I love everything in this moment. It breaks my heart, but it's so incredibly powerful. I don't want to steal anything from Peggy in this moment at all, but we've talked before about how kind of the memory or uh, spirit of Captain America makes other people around him better because he's just so unassumingly good. Like he just assumes that you're going to do the right thing because he would. Right. And it's really, again, with this kind of background in espionage fiction that I have, it's Mm -hmm. really interesting to hear the super spy say the thing that Captain America would say. Yeah. She's not going to be able to maintain that bar for herself. Right. Mm -hmm. That's not how espionage works. Mm -hmm. You don't get to come out of that clean. Right. So underneath what she's saying right here, what, what we know about her going forward, just if she keeps on being a spy and becomes the kind of person who can run S.H.I.E.L.D., Mm -hmm. is that she's going to have to figure out which parts of this, which parts of her esteem for Steve she's prepared to sacrifice. Yep. Now, in this moment, it's fantastic. And we've already talked a couple of ways about how this could be a real bite for Howard because he's trying not to be that person, but he also has to recognize she's right. Mm -hmm. He was that person. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe he was that person 10 minutes ago. We don't know. Yeah. But I do think he's trying, but he can't ignore the truth. This is where she gets to be the truth teller, right? Right. Mm -hmm. While at the same time, again, being, being the guy who thinks about spy stories some of his time, Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, you're not going to be able to be Captain America and be a spy. Right. (laughs) That's, and, and honestly, textually, we find out that's true Mm -hmm. in the next Captain America movie. So anyway, yeah, that is just an amazingly layered moment. Mm -hmm. And I think that burying layers, like so much stuff packed into so little a time, is mm-hmm. why I picked my favorite. Yeah. My favorite part is when Peggy plays into the extremely low expectations that yeah. her coworkers have for her mm-hmm. so that she can save Jarvis. Yeah. She comes in with the report of a lost car and hands it to her boss and just says the most mind-bogglingly stupid thing she could say in that moment, Mm -hmm. but it lets Jarvis have a handhold to climb out of the hole they're trying to put him in. Yeah. And that just, it just broke my heart. Because again, Haley Atwell, very fine actress. There's so many great performances going on in this show. And that she is able to wordlessly portray Mm -hmm. how much she's kind of killing a part of herself to do that. Yeah. And then... You definitely see it more clearly in the scene that she's getting dressed down by Dooley. Do you have any idea how stupid that was? I didn't. Exactly. You didn't think. For the love of people, somebody tell me what I did, who I cheesed off to have you dunked in my lap. And you wonder why you're never catching the actual assignments. Hey. You see this man? He did exemplary work today, and you ruined it. Now, what do you have to say to him? Agent Thompson, I apologize. Agent Carter, sorry, doesn't even begin to cover it. Doesn't even begin to cover it. Get out of my sight. Sir. And she just leaves. Yeah. 
because what else is she going to do? Mm -hmm. And the worst part for her, the worst part for her, this is exactly the opposite of, first of all, who she is Mm -hmm. and how she wants them to see her. Mm -hmm. But this was also the moment that I was like, that is Peggy Carter super spy. Oh, yeah. Because she sacrificed her appearances, which are so important to her, mm-hmm. in order to get the job done. And that's right. spy stuff, you know. So what did you think of that scene? I, I thought it was amazing. And it's what she has to do. Like, as a woman in that environment, you can't screw up. A man can screw up, and that's fine. And he'll just be like, all right, better luck tomorrow, you know, Chris Minsky. Um, although Chris Minsky isn't going to be having any luck anytime uh, because he's dead now. Yeah. Um, but, like, you know, for her... To make that mistake, had she been a man, it wouldn't have meant as much as it means as a woman. You know, you have to be twice as good to get half as far, you know? And I mean, that's the reality in that circumstance, and especially back then in the environment that she was in, you know, that for her to be able to get any meaningful work, you know, and he even says that, you wonder why you never catch any actual assignments, Mm -hmm. as though that's the reason why, because she has never screwed up anything before, but Dooley is using that to retroactively justify the way that he has treated her, you know? And then Thompson is so condescending too in that moment. And I mean, the thing is, Thompson is a good agent. Like, it's kind of confusing to me how mm-hmm. the SSR is being treated like the FBI yeah. more mm-hmm. than the CIA. I mean, it, it is what it is, but it just, you know, again, my, my, my brain kind of grinds on this in mm-hmm. a particular way, Yeah, but he's actually very good mm-hmm. as an FBI guy who could transition to espionage. Sure. Thompson is, mm-hmm. and he is more so even than the chief. I think the person that if Peggy managed to convince she was worth something, yeah. she would be like, that's a victory. I don't need that. But the fact that I did that is a victory. And he gets to be such a condescending ass yes. in one line. Yes, absolutely. It's just galling. Mm-hmm. So, no, and if I'm bad. being galled on behalf of the character, it's, yeah, powerful. <laughs> it's, it's pretty, pretty bad. But I mean, beautifully written, a wonderful, yeah. another wonderful moment for Peggy. I loved it. I can't wait to watch the next episodes in this in this series. It's so good. Yeah, I agree. I'm I'm very excited to have another giant two and a half hour conversation about the next four episodes <laughs> of Agent Carter. <laughs> I know. I can't believe we've been going this long. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Listen Up A-Holes. We will be back next time with our discussion of the remainder of Agent Carter Season 1, Episodes 5 to 8. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, come find us on Twitter. Lonnie is at Lonnie Diane Rich, and I am at Joshua Unruh. And the hashtag is listen up, a-holes. Yes, both Pulp Diction Productions and Chipperish Media are entirely supported by listeners like you. Show your support by visiting our Patreon pages or leaving a great review on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for more people to find us and also join in the conversation. This episode of Listen Up A-Holes was brought to you by Ross Wiley. Ross supports Chipperish Media at the power producer level, and as a reward, gets to produce whatever show he wants. Yes, thank you, Ross, and thank you to everyone who supports both Chipperish Media and Pulp Diction Productions to make Listen Up A-Holes a thing. Check out the show notes to find out how you, too, can become a Listen Up A-Holes producer. Both Pulp Diction and Chipperish have power producer options, so supporting either of us at that level will get you this reward. The links to Apple Podcasts and both our Patreon pages are easy to find right there in the show notes. 
So until next time, let's hope we don't find cheese where the milk's supposed to be.